Right then, welcome or welcome back to the Midnight Podcast, where we have super in-depth, authentic, super transparent, open conversations with an array of different entrepreneurs from many different industries. I really want to make this a podcast known for going super in-depth on loads of topics that other podcasts are scared to speak about. I feel like most stuff out there these days is just super surface level, super vanilla, and doesn't really answer the questions that viewers and listeners want to hear. So that's what we're trying to do. Keep it real and keep it raw. I'm sure you'll get a huge amount of value listening or watching the pod wherever you are. And if you do, don't forget to subscribe, recommend it to a friend, leave a like and a comment and just let us know what you think. And yeah, really hope you enjoy this episode. Right, we're back with episode 64, which has just been confirmed with James Mishraki. I would say serial proper D2C entrepreneur. Something like that. Is that is that a fair description? I guess so. And you're from up north originally. Exactly, from Durham. I went to Union Newcastle. You went to... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I went to Union Newcastle as well. Yeah, really? Yeah, so that was I. where I originally came across you on LinkedIn because I was like, who is this guy? I started reading about Skin and Me and then I started diving into a bunch of other shit, which you have probably done more research on, but I had previously done some on. We then spoke a few months ago about potentially investing in space goods next time. Um, and then we thought we'd get you on the pod. I think this, we tried to make this happen maybe a few times before yeah. you had maybe context on, we had, before we'd spoke. Yeah, I think one of your team back around. Had, had messaged me. This is actually the first, it's been a funny day today because I've always said no to podcasts and stuff like that. And I've decided to start doing some of them. So this morning I did my first ever one. Oh really? And this is my first ever one being filmed. So this is world oh, first. Nice. <laughs> Fucking hell. That's Got a lot the deep end after, after so <laughs> exactly. long. Exactly. Another one next week. What, cha- what changed? What's the motive behind that decision? Just I guess I've always just there. had my head down and I've always questioned what the value is in it. But mm. I think I can be a good evangelist for my companies. And um, I think that you can spread the word, you can recruit talent, you can get great PR. And I think it can just be fun talking to interesting people about the stuff you're passionate about. So I just thought like, why not? 100%. Yeah. That's probably the opposite of most guests because <laughs> a lot of guests and people in the space, which is why I'm keen to pivot it towards, not that we haven't had good guests, but we've had some guests who have a bigger following than they have proper businesses, shall we say, um, which is always the case in entrepreneurialism and like podcasts and so on. But yeah, I just think, yeah, but we're trying to take it more seriously, get people that we can learn from. Well, certainly that's been the biggest benefit of the pod is I've met investors through the pod, like literally three of my investors now came on the pod. That's how we met. We got very drunk together. We now do sober pods because it's midweek. Yeah, you promised me when we spoke, you said red wine in the living room and we got Diet Coke now. Yeah, I know. Well, Christ, we're, we're on the lucky saints yeah, again. Yeah. I don't, Look I don't at us promoting these beer. brands for no sponsorship, know. you know. Exactly, exactly. Me and Ollie actually met <laughs> rowing it in, in Newcastle at Northumbria. Oh, I went to Newcastle Uni as well. So, full yeah. Newcastle room. And then he was the Cox, <laughs> which is a funny story, being six foot two. He was the Cox. We, we used to row together, and he was the Cox in our national championships boat with four of us, and it was kind of chaos. And then we then he started running ads. Well, we actually had a brand together. Fuck. This goes yeah. back a long way. It's come full circle. We had a clothing brand together in uni when I was like 21. You were like 20, 19. I then left. He stayed. I thought he would, had sold his soul to the system and was going to go down a traditional path. We then relinked about three years later when I was running the jewellery business and the neon light business before that one went, went wrong. He started running my ads, was like scaling things. And then oh, has right. recently invested, well, a year ago, invested in space goods, my current business. And now he's on the pod. Nice. So, so, you know, so, so sure. is we 
it all started do, in Newcastle. Brief people on who's going to be here. We just let them turn up. How many um, years ago did you guys finish? Like seven years ago, ish. I'm twenty-five. Years. He's twenty. You're twenty-six. Are you? I'm twenty-seven now. Twenty-seven. How old are you? Spring chicken. I'm thirty-six. Yeah. So you've had a less traditional route to 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 ecom, I guess. So like, obviously, it'd be good to kind of dive through that. I think it's obviously a very unique story. I imagine. Not many people have followed the same path in terms of poker to mm. another business, then to DTC Ecom. So, yeah, I wanted to dive into that really and hear a bit about the story. Um, how did you, obviously professional poker player be pretty interesting space job profession, um, and I'm sure a lot of relevant and interesting learnings for what you do now. But and I know that's a big thing you push is like you felt like. A lot. I've seen on LinkedIn you say that a lot of business owners would benefit from playing poker. So how did you find that and what was the story behind that? Yeah, sure. So I guess to rewind even before then, I've always just been really entrepreneurial. Always yep. knew from a young age, even at school, always said that I didn't want to get a job. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just used to say I want to be a businessman. And like I'm sure you guys did, I was doing all sorts of um, little ideas in school to try and make money when traveling after uni and while I was traveling I'd already me and my friends at, at uni had gotten into poker I just I loved it um I mean even before I was 18 we used to go into the bookies down in Durham used to put a jacket on and hide our school uniform and I just like had a knack for gambling and I loved the buzz of it and then I got into poker and poker is a game of skill with luck involved but it's just lumped into the same yep. category as gambling, basically. When I went traveling, I, my friend and I, we were going around all the casinos. We had a lot of fun, um, so many stories, trying to like fund our trip. And then I, I didn't have a plan for what to do post-traveling. Um, but I broke my back while I was away in New Zealand. Had a really nasty accident on a ski slope and had to come home early. And when I got home, I was like, okay, well, what? am I going to do either like start a business or I was tinkering with different ideas, but poker was just the thing that I naturally fell into. And you can be a, yeah. you know, most people don't realize you can play poker for a living. And I've um, literally never played. I'm assuming oh, most not? people probably I think I've always shied out of you would have with a shirt like that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you think a lot of things I've dabbled like casually with mates, but I imagine a lot of people think there's only two and you either, you either casually play or you play for, Millions, but I'm imagining there's a pretty large middle ground where yeah. you can still make a living. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I was it. basically starting from scratch. I I didn't really have um, money at all, and it's it's an all-consuming lifestyle. You sit in front of your computer. It's quite nocturnal, and yeah. you play for crazy hours. You kind of have you can have a pretty sloppy lifestyle because of the hours that you're going to bed. Um, it teaches you um, a lot of discipline because you can lose your whole bankroll in one night and then the next day you've got to bring your A game. And if you try and chase your losses, you're going to lose even more. Um, it teaches you to get really comfortable just with the um, insane emotional roller coaster. I mean, at my time, at the time for me, it was my whole livelihood was just going yeah. up and down. And in some nights you'd really lose it all pretty much. Um, and so it got me just very comfortable with um, risk yeah. Just in you to be a great poker player, you've got to just not be bothered by the money. So you've got to treat it as just you can't think, oh, I've lost that pot. That could have bought me the following. You've just got to, 
you know, accept this is the way that we play the game. Long term thinking almost and Yeah, exactly. You just you basically yeah. you need to have a complete disregard for the money. Yep. And if you don't, you're a bad poker player. Um and it's gonna come back to bite you. And so Do you consider it gambling? Like uh, uh, well, <laughs> is, it, is it gambling to the extent that betting on horses is? Or do you, is that no, not at all. Because there's no people say that. Like, yeah, there's no skill in gambling. If you imagine going into a casino, you can play poker in a casino, but you're playing against other players. Mm. Everything else in a casino, you get playing against the house. Yeah, and so you can't win against the house in the long run. It's not. It's not possible because the house has an edge. So the table games are complete gambling. There is no skill involved unless you're cheating, and poker. There is skill involved, and over the long run, the best players win. That's just how it is. But there is variance. So in the short term, you could lose, 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 Statistic, and yeah. think that the cards are against you. But it's just variance. It's, math, it's just probability, Statistic, basically. Yeah. Um, so I did that for basically a couple of years. Um, I mean, it sounds quite glamorous, but it's an emotional roller coaster. I was living at home at the time, and um, I didn't... I guess I started out having these aspirations for that to be a long-term career for me. But as I got into it, I realized, um, I mean, the stimulation you get from the game is pretty damn limited, as you can imagine. You're just sat in front of a computer playing against people yeah. you never meet, and poker players have a habit of just living in their pajamas. I, um, I also realized that the game had been quite easy to beat in like the early 2000s when there was this poker boom. This guy called Chris Moneymaker, that was his real name, won the World Series of Poker, and he satellited into it for $10. So that told, that showed everyone, oh, wow, just anyone can win this, yep. you know, if you play your cards right. So poker really opened up, and the legislation changed in the U.S., and people were making money, like, really easily with some, like, pretty basic poker strategy. When I got into the game... Um, the regulation in the U.S. had changed, so a lot less. There was a lot. The player pool was smaller, so what we call fish, the yep. easy money, the bad players. There was less of those. Poker training sites were like two a penny, so your average player was better and better. And I kind of realized I probably got to play this for another five to seven, eight years to get to a reasonable standard. Yep. And even then, it's really freaking hard, yep. Yep. <laughs> and it's a lot harder than it used to be. And I wasn't prepared to give up bulk of my 20s doing that basically um did you ever do any in in person or was it all mm -hmm. online yeah i did used to go to vegas quite a bit i mean That's it's funny good stories around that as well <laughs> yeah i mean vegas it, it is um i couldn't go for more than a long weekend now but i used to go for like three four weeks at a time I've which is crazy to think about you guys been <laughs> yeah I've, a few times yeah i've never been no but i've literally never even gambled in vegas i think i always i used to bet on like I used to do matched betting when I was like 16. You ever try that? That's yeah. where you think you can win. And I would make like £400 a month. But then I then I got into trading oil derivatives and shit. And I, I remember losing like 500 quid on Christmas Eve and crying myself to sleep. And I said, I'm never gambling again. I guess entrepreneurship became the next kind of gamble, but it's more controllable. Yeah. So There's, there's a lot of crossovers like that, though. You know, yeah. you, can, you can think you're yeah. nailing it by 1 p.m. <laughs> by 4 p.m. that day it's Completely, the worst day yeah, of the yeah. year <laughs> and then by yeah. 6 p.m. you're like maybe i've turned it around <laughs> yeah um, very true very true yeah i was gonna say like the just hearing you say a lot of those elements and a lot of those emotional elements and day the fluctuations in your day it transfers a lot to business i feel like that in that, like even that detachment from finance from a daily today kind of standpoint is it's probably a net 
beneficial mindset to have it. Obviously, you can't do it to the same degree. You've got to know your numbers. But um, yeah, I can see. What would you say? That was going to be one of my main questions is what, what do you count as kind of, say, top three transferable skills from that that you would say like has really aided you in your journey so far? Yeah, I think the... Um, the comfort with risk yep. is um, is probably the highest one. So I just don't have something that your average person will see as risky. Like I just never have because I've never had a job and I've always done my own thing. So it just things don't phase me that in a business sense probably would phase your average I'm person. A lot more risk averse in the way I run our companies. Like I run it with large cash flow in the bank, like less risk taking. Um, he runs an agency. It's what I say. You got a balls to run a brand. Yeah, but like, yeah, just how I've always operated. But I can see, like, mm. I could definitely be riskier, and then you'd definitely move faster. And by taking bigger bets, you make faster progress. I feel obviously some of it won't pay off, but that's just the nature of the game. So mm-hmm. I can see how that would definitely transfer. Well, yeah. It's just like did you get? Did you go to uni then? Sorry, or no? Yeah, yeah I did. You, did you finish? Yeah, I finished. I haven't used the degree. I didn't learn anything. I did marketing management. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, the irony. Soft yeah. skills, though. Mm. <laughs> I did entrepreneurship for six weeks. Dropped out. Went back and did graphic design. Dropped out again. And then that was that was that was that. Uh, how long um, did you do graphic design for? A year. Actually, no. Then I switched to advertising, but I was running Facebook ads at the time when they were telling me about print. So it was then I stopped going, and then we were running. I did what became the clothing brand. Which is even less transferable than both of those, probably. Yeah, yeah. In a, if I could have another life, I'd do economics, because I do find it interesting. I find it somewhat interesting, but then I've, I don't find, like, the, the, the uni structure of it. It's just a bit... It's just so much, like, math models and, like, just health economics and, like, elements like that that would just... Yeah, I've just never used. But, yeah, I think that's the key. If you're going to do universities, do something that you actually find interesting. Mm-hmm. I picked it just because I was like... Oh, didn't know what to do and it sounded like obviously it was a decent path to a decent career if you didn't drop out or switch into doing something for yourself mm-hmm. um but yeah um you asked three things yeah poker i guess also it teaches you to be much better at negotiation because you uh, it, it basically is negotiating you know you're having to learn to um you go against your natural in- instinct, which is to display your emotions. You have to completely hide your emotions at the poker table, and um, otherwise people can read you, and then they can use that against you. And so it's quite similar to negotiation in the sense that you... you Selling, yeah. Like in, sitting in awkward silences and just accepting exactly. that rather than... Exactly. And also having... It's really intimidating in poker if you're running a big bluff. Um but you can't show that you're nervous and you can't show that you're weak and you've sometimes just got to go with it. And as you guys know, if it's a really like challenging or, or meaningful negotiation that you're in, you've sometimes got to um, make a move that, you know, is this going to work out? I'm going to screw, screw the whole thing up, but you've got to act confident and just roll with it. And probably also just like long-term thinking because in the short term variance really can work against you and it can be really stressful. But I've always... One of my principles is just like um, always focus on the big picture and I always know things are going to be all right in the end. And if you do the right stuff over the long run, it works out and it compounds. And in poker, you've just got to always keep thinking. Probability will play out, basically. I can definitely see that transfer, even even like now, especially now at the moment, with encountering a lot of businesses that haven't 
adopted that mindset in the e-com space and they're caught in a, like a financial issue of, of thinking on too short a time horizon and not, not zooming out to a bigger picture, going into economic issues. So they had three solid... I think that's the whole problem with... Solid transfers. I never thought long-term when I was getting started. I just wanted to fucking... And because e-com can be so scalable compared to anything else and it's probably the most, you know, this generation of new money entrepreneurs, whatever guys making like wi-fi money which is just kind of the incorrect way of thinking about it but you know you can start like neon beach was a great example i scaled it too quick because i just i was so like revenue hungry and wanted the big numbers but i didn't have the foundation and i guess if i'd looked on a longer term you know time frame might still be here but i guess i'm think i've learned that and i'm thinking that way with this thing so yeah it's not growing as quick but it's on much better foundations but you're in control exactly yeah, yeah. And I won't have I think s- stat demands from creditors at my door. It's this very time happened. Oh, it was a fucking mess. It's very Once you get sucked into that short-term mentality, it's then really hard to break it, I feel. You kind of start chasing your tail, which I feel a lot of people get into the problem. It's because of social media. Running, when you start running into headwinds and zooming out is important. But why Why did you stop poker? Why did you Was it just didn't enjoy the lifestyle, wanted to move to something a bit... Yeah, I think different. <laughs> It's just for a certain type of person. I, I love the game. It's my one of my favorite nights of the month. Is I host a poker game at my at my home, and nice. it's it's great. So it always, but now that my livelihood doesn't depend on it, it's a lot more enjoyable. Mm. I stopped because I just had much, much, much bigger ambitions than um, playing poker, basically. And um, I think you can easily fall into a trap of comfort. And like I said, like I could have easily slipped into a few more years, but they're such crucial years that, yeah, I hung my boots up as hard as it was at the time because I didn't have like an alternative that was going to make me money overnight. Yeah. So it was, it was hard to walk away from. But And how far out of uni were you at this point? So you've gone full-time poker. Yeah, graduated in 2008. And then I played through to like late 2010, about two years. I played full-time for, so I was about two years out of uni. And then how does that become getting into the whole D2C space and, and businesses there? Yeah, sure. So um, I didn't start in D2C. So in hindsight, I wish I did. But it's going to be a question. Yeah, in, t- in 2012. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, um, I was, I've been tinkering with all sorts of ideas. I've been learning online marketing. I started a little, I mean, had like three, four micro sites going to make AdSense money, stuff like that. Um, on all sorts of stuff. I had this website called the homemade cookie store.com, which would make like AdSense money from cookie recipes. Love Never it. baked a cookie in my life. So just hire these writers to write these recipes. Yeah. Who knows if they actually worked. And I started uh, like a little marketing agency and I used to do SEO for people. And then I started this software business with two other guys, which was, um, it's still going today, but I sold out of it um, like five, six years ago. And we used to compare retail pricing of, all sorts of different websites to help companies compare pricing and be and outsmart the competition, basically. Yeah. So B two B, like SaaS, but not SaaS in the sense that, like, I don't know, an intercom is SaaS. So it wasn't like frictionlessly globally scalable because there was a lot of heavy lifting behind yeah. the scenes. Because the way we did it was through web crawlers, and they needed maintenance and setup. So it it was um, we got the business to work, and it was um, basically effectively self-funded um you know we bootstrapped it basically and it was a nice lifestyle business but i wanted to take it to a level that 
like my co-founder didn't, well, one of my co-founders, the, the day-to-day one, didn't want to. And so it was just inevitable that, like, you know, much like the poker, I wasn't prepared to spend another five plus years of my life in that business because I could see what the yeah. outcome was going to be. It's like impossible to have a huge outcome yeah. with the, the plan that we had. So I guess from that, and I did that for a while, like all through my 20s. And in hindsight, I wish that I'd ditched that business sooner. Yeah. But it is what it is. Getting in the right boat. No matter how fast you row, if you're not in the right boat. Exactly. You, you, you know, I was working every hour of the day. Yeah. So I'm going to make this thing work. But you know how it is. Classic story. First proper business doing everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like working hard, not smart. Yeah. That's sunk cost, man. It's hard again to when you're in it to make that switch, though, isn't it? Because you get that sunk cost of like, I've put so much time into this. Even if it is the wrong vehicle, if you're like, I'm so deep into this, don't can't even think about sacking, like not sacking it off, but moving. To something mm. that probably would move faster and it's get probably you close impossible to, your to get in the right vehicle from day one, though, isn't it? Oh, 100%, there's not many yeah. people. There's it's some, but there's not many people. You got to fuck up a few times, or even find your passion. Like, don't know what you're interested in. So, I've yeah, yeah, so you just make me think of some sort of idea to help like young entrepreneurs that are like 18 and better start their first thing. Like a way for them to just test Analyze. or trial out or go to an event or some sort of course to test 10, 20 different. Mm types of business and just figure out what they're most passionate about or, or what their like founder like business founder market fit is best yeah. suited to because you're right it is really freaking hard to find it and that's one of my biggest if i could turn back the clock i think the trajectory of my entrepreneurial career would have step changed if i'd picked the right thing at day one what the fuck is this Space Goods, spacegoods.com, Rainbow Dust version one, my newest entrepreneurial econ brand venture. I spent six months in the trenches building this shit from scratch. We launched six weeks ago. What's it all about? The next generation wellness brand with a long-term vision to essentially consumerize the pending psychedelic consumer goods market, which might sound absolutely ridiculous. We're not quite there yet. The market's massively illegal. But what is this? Rainbow Dust version one is an all-in-one mushroom and adaptogenic blend designed to unlock your supernatural self. Essentially, experience a sharper focus, sustained energy, and like calm throughout the day. It's an all-in-one powder. Tastes like fucking hot chocolate. Tastes delicious. Works great. Looks great. Feels amazing. Essentially, the broader concept here was to legally imitate a psychedelic microdose and like I said, experience those symptoms. You can mix it with anything, brownies, bake brownies with it, mix it with your coffee, have it without coffee, replace your coffee, put it into a protein shake. It's super fucking versatile. It tastes great. It replaced the stack of supplements I was previously taking, but you need to try this shit. It would definitely change the way you work, get you into that deep workflow. I obviously think that myself, plenty of our thousand plus first customers think the exact same shit. It's not just a pretty packaging, it actually works really fucking well. Keto, vegan, all that good shit. Trust me, you need to try it for yourself. Let's scale the shit to the moon. Spacegoods.com. Get on your Rainbow Dust subscription and see how you fucking feel. Let's do it for the boys. Spacegoods.com. Well, I was going to say, like, I've always been in e-commerce, but but I've always chopped and changed between different things in e-com. I've, I've never built a brand for even three years, let alone five years or yeah. 10 years. And I, if I had, but, but you know, might be very different, but I guess my thing was, I knew I wanted to originally it was design logos. Then it was monetize design. So it was selling fucking t-shirts and it was drop shipping jeans. Then it became a jewelry business. Then I started a fucking other thing and you build the skills, but at least I was doing something that I was getting better at. So now I'm much better than I was five years ago or six years ago when I went full-time, five, five and a half years ago. Whereas, yeah, I think the scary thing is people, the biggest risk 
and people message me all the time with the back of their pod is you know, how do I how do I know what I want to do? And it's like, well, if you're stuck in a grad scheme, say you go and get a degree and you know get into a job you don't like, it's very hard to then find what you like doing because you're spending ten hours a day working a job. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I never, I guess, not luckily, but fortunately, I so we we made it work with that clothing thing was the first yeah. bit of real money I'd ever seen, and then I I, I left uni and jumped headfirst into entrepreneurship, which was always what I was going to do. I just didn't know. I didn't have the the money to do it until then. And that was like, well, fuck it. Then I met people. And then when you meet other people, that's the biggest change. Because mm-hmm. suddenly that becomes your world and I, you learn from them and so on. Exposure yeah. to people, exposure to experience. You're, you've kind of, I think your business interests have matured as you've matured. I definitely think that's a thing. Like what you're interested in at 18 is not going to be what you're interested in at 30 or very rarely. Your, yeah. your interests are going to change as well. So your desires and things that you want to work on are probably going to follow that. Um, but yeah, I think it's hard to think of how you'd how you'd structure that. I know there's a, I think it's Antler. Antler do something, they're like a founder's scheme where they they get a big group of founders and you pair up with someone there. They're not a suitcase brand. Maybe I've got the name <laughs> wrong. No, it is. The, no, is it there is some sort of they like do. incubator they do something like that. Brand. They pair you up with someone as a of similar interest, and you try and align on on a vehicle and in, in a business to start together, and then they provide you with like incubator funding, which is. Mm-hmm. I knew they did one called uh, Entrepreneur First. They offered I've me a place on it, yeah. and uh, but I turned it down. I actually there's one called Jumpstart. Don't know if you heard of that. It's for the they call it like the one percent of graduates. So yeah, I, we've, I we've actually hired through it. Yes, yeah, so I, I did a presentation to their cohort last week. Um, I wasn't actually sure if I needed someone, but I thought interesting to see the sort of talent that's out there. And it's really weird because I wanted to go to Oxford Uni when I was younger because I used to be a rower and I thought I might get a rowing scholarship, but then I quit rowing and went through this weird wanting to be a travel YouTuber phase and whatever. I went to Northumbria. It wasn't quite the same. But now there's people that have, they're all 90% are Oxford, Oxbridge graduates, so they're very smart. But they're like pitching that they want to come and get a job working for me now. And it's just, the imposter syndrome is insane. Really? So I'm thinking these guys are way too clever. But then they're probably thinking, I would never have the balls to start my own thing like I've done. That's who you want to so hire, though. Exactly, yeah. smarter than you. But I guess they're all the sort of graduates that, you know, have a generally more entrepreneurial interest. And it's c- kind of similar because they would want to work very close to the founder in an early stage business where they can learn probably 10 times as much or 100 times as much as they would in a big corporate I definitely advise people to go work in, up in, in startups out of you, yeah. if you don't know what you want to do. That's what I did. I did like a 12-month internship at a SaaS startup. Just got thrown right in at the deep end. Like yeah. two people on the marketing team, me and one guy. It's just like systems, operations, front-to-back finances. Yeah, I completely so agree. Faster. I always get a surprise when I hire someone or just even talk to someone that has always been in the corporate world because I've only ever had my own businesses and I've yeah, never same. spent a day in a big established company and when they're so surprised or like inspired by just a day in the life of a startup like oh my word it sounds so exciting oh and yeah i guess you get to know about them like yeah everyone knows everything (laughs) faster scrappier more learning yeah yeah exponentially more exposure to things consistent extreme anxiety (laughs) (laughs) yeah than sat in a booth bucketing into some operational procedure where you're just doing like the same thing over and over and over again which is what I think they get to at that sort of stage. We, you know, you mentioned the whole Oxbridge um, imposter syndrome. Do you think that, do you look at, if you're recruiting, do you look at um, 
the university that someone has been well, at it's as funny a strong signal. I've only really started. I've been so shit at hiring. He's going to help me with this. He's much better. I'm, I'm very zero to one. I think I'm one of the best not in the world, but I'm, that's my strong point. Zero to one. You put me in a room six months, I get anything to a million in revenue. Anything. It's it's getting going from one to ten and ten to a hundred, which I'm now because I'm my brain is fully formed at age twenty seven. They say it happens at twenty five. I'm now finally aware that I actually need to hire people because anyone good is going to be better than me at the thing that they're doing. Because I'm a very very much generalist, but particularly I'm fo- I like the creative stuff most. I'm just not an operator. Don't enjoy it. So that's the first thing. I, I previously used to just not even think about hiring properly. It was always freelancers, agencies for everything. So what's the question again? <laughs> I've gone off on a tangent. I was, I was asking. Do I care about that? No, no. It's like, do you view, now that you've got a different perspective and you at one point wanted to get an Osbridge yourself, yeah. like, do you, well, yeah, do you look at that as a strong signal? I um, mean, it, it, it would signal to me that they are, and maybe this is just chipping my shoulder, it would signal to me that they're not an entrepreneur. Which is either good or bad, because if they're an entrepreneur, they wouldn't have finished their degree, in my opinion. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you look at like some of the people who founded some of the biggest companies in the world. Often but I think they can be a good number too. I don't know if they're like a they founder lot, type. A lot of the ones in the US go through four-year degrees and leave and found, they'd go on to an, like an incubator and then found... Yeah, I mean, companies. you're talking about like Harvard and shit then, yeah. But which uh, I guess is similar. I think like for me, we don't look at that for us. We've got like 60 people. Um... I think if this is we, your uh, agency. Yeah, two yeah. different agencies. Um, I think if I was hiring fifteen to twenty years ago, I would use it as a much bigger signal, or maybe maybe slightly longer time period ago than that. Obviously, you'd be in a different industry and climate entirely, so you're hiring for different things. But mm-hmm. I think it mattered a lot more before then. We don't really look at formal education at all. We hire very much for mindset, personality, culture fit for the roles that we're hiring for, and then anything technical skill based is like secondary to that but still important this would differ if i was hiring like a developer or something that requires like really high tech technical acumen but i'm a I, I value like mindset and um like willingness to learn proactivity exponentially harder i, I guess if they're through something like jumpstart though you have the social proof of firstly they've gone through a process to get into the best uni, which is definitely one card on the table over like just, I don't know, going to Teesside Uni, no offence. And then going through like an incubator, like Jumpstart, they've gone through another process, which yeah, true, which makes true. them suitable for startups apparently. So yeah, yeah I mean, something like that. That's different, yeah. They're guaranteed to be at a baseline good. It's just whether they get on with you and understand the business, I suppose. How about yourself? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you look at education as a proxy for the talent uh, I, hiring? I, no, I'm the same as you in that um, all that really matters is, I mean, it depends on the seniority, but like yeah. the non-negotiables are um, that they are going to be a self-starter, they're going to take initiative, and they just get it in a problem yeah. solver, and um, they're not going to you know be a passenger they're, they're going to be like a driver in the business yep. that's the most important thing um it's it's a nice bonus sure if there's other ways to demonstrate that you're really diligent and committed and you can get stuff done 100%. like other than going to the best unis um so yeah it's it's a tick but it's like a bonus tick basically yeah, it's like third or fourth on the list for us i think like our our best staff members both of them well other than like c-suite high high end both of them didn't go to university 
kind of a, a, a just the best by far. And I think, yeah, I think you can use it, but I just I just don't know if it translates. It just definitely doesn't translate to our industry as as much as it would to others. Because marketing, you just fundamentally don't learn at university. I don't believe. Yeah, I definitely didn't learn marketing on my marketing management That's course in Northumbria. <laughs> too fast moving, yeah. two hands on the job. Entrepreneurial business management I did for six weeks. I didn't even know that was a course. Maybe, maybe it wasn't Sounds like a day. joke. It was actually a course. Yeah, it definitely probably wasn't in your day. I think it was fairly new. In fact, I think I might have been the first year that did it. But no one that was teaching it had ever started a business. So it's quite ironic. So after the software business. I, st- I had basically been like running that company for all through my 20s decided to take the leap of faith and and step out which was like walking away from my stable income and all of that and you know went through the challenges of um untangling with my co-founder basically i think in the space of a month i stepped out of my business which was like my baby i broke up with my girlfriend of like seven eight years i sold my house and i moved to london well <laughs> there was a lot of change going on but i was either going to move to london or san francisco um and i yeah Came came down here and just started getting into the mixer and was laser focused on starting a business with someone that had started a business before, basically, or had sorry sold a business before. So I basically became like a full time networker in London and spent six months just meeting all the exited founders that I could find. Didn't have, I didn't have a clear idea what to do next. To be honest, I didn't come to London and think, oh, I'm gonna do D to C and that's where my heart is. Did you need to work again though, just for context? When you exited the previous business, was actually, that I hadn't like, how, actually, how big was that? Relatively? Uh, no, no, it didn't set me up for life. Right? Yeah, it was it was a nice cushion, but that actually was after that point. That was um, like a year or so after I moved to London. Okay. Yeah, so I still had like the dividends coming out of it, and I'd invested some of my money, so I I was I didn't have to come straight to London and earn basically, but. I met a bunch of interesting founders. I met like one in particular who is the guy that I ended up starting Skin and Me with. Um, and the I guess the journey to starting Skin and Me was like very accidental. You know, we met a guy who now is a board member of mine at Skin and Me, who has a private equity fund in the beauty industry. And it was really through him I got exposed to the beauty category. There's this whole thing called the lipstick effect. Are you familiar with that? It's like I was going to say you've got good skin, so you must have had a great routine <laughs> and then started skinning me. Yeah, yeah, something like I that. Remember that though. I, I had really bad skin actually through school. My nickname was Peter Face. Really fucking yeah, yeah. ruthless. That's that's yeah, yeah. English school nickname. Yeah, yeah. Boys get bullied. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So it is. Um, uh, so yeah, the lipstick effect basically just speaks to the resilience of the beauty industry. So like even in times of war and real hardship, women will still wear lipstick and buy mm. lipstick because it gives them confidence and they won't compromise on that. And so it's really resilient as a category. It's a very high gross margin category. It's very standard to get 90 plus percent gross margins in beauty. Um, the packaging always costs more than the products inside it. It's got a really low return rate and a high average order value and people spend a disproportionate amount of their disposable income on it. In a lot of cases, like in quite an irresponsibly, like, um, give me ideas. And I'm going to start another brand. <laughs> yeah. You've got enough going on right now. Mm. And so, um, we had a bunch of ideas that we wanted to test out in the beauty industry. Um, there was a trend at the time around personalization. Everyone, it was like AI was one day. Now AI's had a resurgence and it actually means something. Back then it was like everything is personalized, but all it was was basically a quiz on a website and it would just send you to a few products. 
um, what we tested out was we had this theory that if we could set up this um, website that gave you skincare recommendations from a real human being that you could trust, and we sent you a personalized collection of products, that we could then hook you into a subscription and you'd stay subscribed to that box. So we did it proper MVP, me and Phil. We set up a site. It was called Mr. and Mrs. Oliver, which is still to this day the limited company of Skin and Me. Um, and people would complete this consultation and then we hired these skincare experts that would make a recommendation. And then we had this idea to send people the full-size products along with the little sample pots. So the idea was that you would use the sample pots over the course of a week and we've pre-authored your card. And only if you liked the products would we then charge you. But if you didn't like them, you'd send it back. What I would do though, was because we were self-funding this and um, these products cost a lot of money, we didn't want to have to buy full-size products and squeeze them into sample pots. So my job was basically every day running from our office on Wardour Street in Soho to Oxford Street um, and going into the beauty counters and convincing them to give me samples. And I would go in with my own pots. And they would look at me like, why have you got your own pots? It's like, oh, I've just got like a, a, like a problem with hygiene. I can't use other sample pots. And I got barred from Debenham's Beauty Hall as part of this. I was going for that long. And um, we used to send people these boxes. And I had all these ideas around, <laughs> this is my ideas as to how we could improve box one retention. And I was like, oh, we'll put a free gift in and we'll put some yeah. chocolate in. And the amount of people that would get the box eat the chocolate and just send the box back to us. <laughs> but that as a business model is really flawed because in order for it to work, you've got to um, have stock of every brand basically. Otherwise you, you've got to like, you know, you don't have complete impartiality when you're recommending stuff and you don't have the margin because they're not your brands and you don't have the control. So what's to stop you signing up on our website? We recommend this box and you go, oh, thanks for all the ideas. I'm going to go to Amazon and get them for yeah, a lot yeah. cheaper or Cult Beauty or something like that. No IP really. Yeah. Exactly. There is a company now doing that exact business model, but they'll never make much money from it because it just doesn't work. It doesn't scale. So we took the learnings from it, um, albeit we didn't like the business model. But the big learning was that people really like a human being giving them personalized recommendations. They absolutely loved the Seems feeling so that, yeah. well, they're mm -hmm. like offloading the research and the decision making the credibility has been outsourced to someone else. And yeah. so they just have to listen to what we say. And they, they, they wanted to get to know their skincare expert and all that. And we were trying to figure out how could we keep that component, but build a business model around it, which is truly defensible and scalable. And when it comes to high street products in beauty, they don't really work. They promise that they'll work but you can't put really effective ingredients in them and sell them on a shelf in a beauty store because, you know, a young person could go in and buy them. And so there's really tight controls around what you can actually put in them. So what we felt was, well, if we could get really effective ingredients that are proven to work in clinical trials, i.e. medicine, mm -hmm. and put that in a personalized treatment, along with this sort of layer of a human being that you trust, that'd be a really compelling service that you cannot get elsewhere. And so it took about a year of exploring what is and isn't possible, meeting different people, testing stuff out to land on what is today the skin and me business model. It was actually called Gleam at the time, which yeah. in hindsight is better suited to like a teeth whitening business. But we, um, you know, sent out 
250 handwritten letters to a third of the UK's dermatologists in order to find our first dermatologist and just spent a while. Handwritten letters. That's a good strategy. Yeah, yeah. Really I mean, strategy. I found a software or a website that does that with a robot writing it. Oh, really? <laughs> Literally. It's called handwritten. AI <laughs> but it's but it's ha- actually written. It's not printed. That's the USP. It's like five pound a card, but I think it's genius. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Was that gleam? We'd was that gleam a joke on purpose? Because there is a gleam teeth whitening. Uh, no, no, no. One it, of my good mates not. has a skincare brand called Gleam In. Gleam really? Well, there was loads of it like conflicting. Gleam, skin, gleam is a teamwork teeth whitening really? brand. Yeah, that's yeah, so funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I, in hindsight, I always think that it was it's better suited to like car polish or yeah. teeth whitening. Ah, true. Shine mm. effect, isn't it? The reason that we didn't go with it, we were literally days away from spending a quarter of a million dollars on the domain name. And you, wait, you're self-funding this at this point. Oh, sorry, no, no, I've jumped ahead. But um, yeah, we'll go to the, that bit. Let's okay. let's come back. Let's come back to, to, to Gleam dot com in yeah. a bit. Um, so we had this business model and got really freaking excited about it, basically, because we had this idea that you know you can't get these products elsewhere. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's a huge industry, 140 billion pounds skincare industry. You know, 50 percent of people are not happy with the skincare that they're using, and there are skin conditions like acne, which is really debilitating as a condition. Um, it's a huge like group of the market that have pigmentation issues or rosacea or anti They want to like reduce the signs of aging, but the stuff on the high street they spend a load of money on, but it doesn't really work. It's like a generalization for what is an organ, really, isn't it? And everybody's comp- everybody has different skin. It's like the, I can see what you mean. Like the high street has to be generalist because it's selling to millions of people a day. And exactly. Only, only by taking out that scale touch point and taking it down to like a linear one-to-one mm. relationship can you be as like, individual as you, and that's kind of emote, I guess, like mm-hmm. instantly emote in the business, like we do something that they can't replicate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they cannot get it elsewhere. So yeah. with Skin and Me, your alternatives are you go to the high street and you buy stuff that doesn't work. You go to your GP. Yep. Sorry, the second option is you go to a private dermatologist. No one in the UK can afford that, really. It's hundreds of pounds for a 20-minute consultation. Yep. So only rich people can do that. Your alternative is to then go to a GP I mean, my dad was a GP. They've had two weeks training in dermatology. They're not the specialists at it. So they give you general, like, yep. advice. Um, and then you're kind of, like, on your way and you're alone. It's not like you can WhatsApp them and pick up the phone and send questions every day. Um, and you've got a generic treatment that has been manufactured on mass and has been sat on a shelf and is just given to you in the same way it's given to someone else. If you get referred to a dermatologist which you have to have been through multiple courses of treatment or have something severely wrong with you, um, you're probably going to have a six-month wait in, like, much of the UK. There's 650 derms in the UK, you know. In the US, it's like 15,000. Everyone has one. It's, like, part of the culture. And here, it's just completely different. So it was clear that not only, oh, if we set, if we can figure out how to set this up, are we providing something that you can't get elsewhere? It's genuinely alleviating, like, um, stress on the NHS and mm. just giving people a route to treatment that they can't get. And so the path that we then followed was um, we were actually going to raise a small funding round in order to do the whole, you know, three, 500K MVP, prove it out, raise more money. And we got an offer from an angel investor. It's just the two of us at this time, still self-funding it. Got the one dermatologist on board. Yep. We met an investor who wanted to, like, put like 200 250k in but it was it, it that happened like really quickly and we were just like 
kind of feel like we want to suss out more of the market. Probably sounds um, like I've got a good idea here if people are trying to give me money straight away. Yeah. <laughs> also, I think it was an investor that we knew would hammer us down on valuation and want all sorts of controls and all that. And so, like, we kept that investor as best we could in our back pocket. And we ended up meeting uh, an angel investor that um, had built and sold three successful DTC companies in the UK. And so he'd actually been basically top of our list in terms of, like, an investor that we could bring on board. And so we met him, um, took a bit of while, bit of time to get him over the line, but he just deeply understood the business better than anyone. And just through spending a little bit of time with him, we really started to understand, frankly, how, like, what ingredients you need to make a business like this work and to set it up from scale from the get-go. And we also realized how flawed our 300, 400K, like, yeah. MVP strategy was to achieve a really big outcome, yeah. basically. So what we did was we still raised a small funding round, which he led. It was less than 300K. But the only reason we raised that money was to build the team, create the brand and so on, to go out and raise a much bigger funding round to then set up the business for scale from day one. So we closed that, say, in December 2018. Been working on this throughout the whole of 2018. And um, we then just went all in on creating the brand and making progress in other areas of business to the extent we could and recruiting a really high caliber team to get ready to go out and raise a meaningful round. And we were thinking between five and 10 million pounds. How do we, you, 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 you uh, any revenue up to this point? No. Are we just sussing out the market? Yeah, no revenue. I think yeah, I've never raised uh, money with revenue, not right, yet. Yeah. So my, friend, my friends call me the tractionless raiser. I'm finding raiser. it hard to raise money with lots of revenue, I think the IP yeah, is well, 2023, the I, right? That's the because that's because you get judged on yeah. on your on your metrics. If you can sell the dream and you've got a really compelling plan, then um, they can't judge you on your metrics. The second you have them, if they're not completely on fire, so that's the trick. Yeah, it's just well, it's like a, you're selling a story basically, and like you're selling. I think you came up with obviously you had credibility idea. from the previous venture, and you, you mentioned the co-founder. What was his? Yeah, so he'd had um, he'd had a couple of businesses of his own, and he'd sold one in the the like early dot com days, which was a real success as a price comparison site um, called Calcu. And I think what made a really meaningful. So obviously, when we met Graham, who in who was the three time D to C exited founder that led the angel. Oh, is that what's his second name? Bosher. Yeah. Yeah, I actually emailed him. Was it Tails.com? Tails.com, yeah, and Grace.com. Yeah, yeah, all right, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think, like, for his decision-making to come on board, obviously it was, like, he needed belief in us as a founding team and belief in the business model. And then, I guess, for the next stage, which was the big, like, £8 million round, um, they needed belief in like what became a bigger team. So we recruited in the time between his funding rounds and like six months later, the round led by Octopus, we'd recruited three co-founders. So they were um, like really pivotal team members, one in ops, one in tech, one in um, digital, basically, and customer. We'd built out more of the team underneath that. We'd created the brand and we'd built a five-year financial plan. We had like designed what our factory was going to look like. We'd got everything that we could get in place, ready to go, uh, you know, until we had that money in the bank, basically. 
Um, and so it's a slightly atypical strategy. And if I hadn't met him, I wouldn't have thought about setting up a business for scale like that from day one. How can you build a financial plan if you don't even know if the CAC's going to be five times higher than you thought it was? So you can only build these things based on assumptions that you're comfortable being challenged on. And you can use reference points of previous businesses that maybe you and the team have operated in or started. You can use reference points of comparable companies in the US that you can get from Second Measure and stuff like that. And just through relentless hammering people that you know that are close to companies that are good comparables. And like, it's always a good test of a founder, I find, when they're like, oh yeah, this company's killing it in the US. Okay, what are their numbers? Oh, we don't know. Why not? Oh, we don't know anyone there. No one knows anyone anywhere until you really, really push it. And so um, there's always a way to find this information out. And it's basically just a case of triangulating stuff, but but having like sound rationale when you're challenged. Yeah. Interesting. I've just never heard of raising pre, at least in D2C. Like eight mils are pretty chunky amount. Was was that largely credibility? Because I mean, I think I would struggle to go out and, raise yeah i think unless i'm thinking too small i think well this is the thing i think part of it is well the starting point is mindset you can't raise that funding round on mindset but i'm just saying it did require a mindset shift and i remember i used to go to different events around that time and i would be a bit sheepish about the amount of money that we're planning to raise to begin with and i remember at one point just being like oh this guy asked oh we're raising yeah like how much said five million so okay but you haven't started yet. No, we haven't started. And I think that either goes one or two ways. It's either like, well, you're bonkers, or it's quite inspiring and motivating. And in that case, he found it the latter. And ever since then, it just reminded me that, like, you you just got to own whatever it is you want to do yourself. And no one's going to push you to think big or act big. No one's going to make those decisions and those calls for you. And you've just got to, like, um, just go for it. And so... In our case, yeah, I mean, I didn't even, at one point, I didn't know that it was possible to raise between five and 10 million, like pre-launch, but I've done it for my new company as well. And it definitely is, if you have a huge market opportunity, a defensible business model, and a highly credible team, and you've just demonstrated that you've deeply, deeply, deeply thought and planned out what you're going to do with this business, and you've got, like, credibility in terms of execution. I think yeah, the the vehicle that you're trying to raise it for, and the idea that you're trying to raise it for is, and it's got to be compelling. But then yeah, conviction and team. We're trying to do the same for an app that we're building. Um, on the side, we're trying to raise like two million pre-rev to build. To basically, we've got an MVP, like we've got an app MVP, but we need to take it to market. So we're going through the similar thing at the moment. Um, very early stage. I wish I never had customers. I should have raised 10 mil pre-launch. <laughs> well, I always I say to people, they they should, you know, you should raise as much as you can when you don't need it because you always need mm. more than you think and there's yeah. nothing worse than going out begging for money when you really need it. And That's look rude. at what's happening this past 12 yeah. months, frankly. The amount of companies that wish they had, um, I mean, one I invested in and, you know, the founder could have taken on an extra like 600K, I remember at the time, and said, oh, I don't want to take the dilution. I'm like, the dilution's irrelevant. It's 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 irrelevant. You're thinking about the long the wrong way, and they've they've since had to stop like shut down the business. And I bet if they could turn about the clock, <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't matter how much you dilute. People are much more willing to invest in you when you don't need the money. I feel same with. Mine's gone now. I'm back. You're back. I'm back. Were you building the team? Gone again. Going on. So 
know what I mean? This is what man keeps doing. Let's be professional, should you? Right, we're good. Build a team pre cash in bank, or were you self funding a little bit? I mean, you said you raised like three hundred k. So were you just yeah building so, a team from that, and then so me and Phil had put like you know twenty twenty five k in, and two other guys um, also put in that same amount. But we we'd pretty much spent all of that. Yeah. I mean, until the point that Graham invested, I was literally subletting two of the desks in our little Soho office to make money. And then nine months later, there's 8.3 million, like, or something in the bank. Mm. Um, so we weren't, like, flush for cash. But the route to recruiting the early co-founders was not, like, how much money can we pay them today? It was um, getting them get getting their belief in what the value of their equity was going to be. Because they're both walking away from... Well, the three of them are walking away from like very stable um, careers and mm. earning rates. One of them at Facebook on a really high salary. So, um, well, well, I don't know, whatever Facebook salaries are, but they're probably pretty solid. So you can only do that if they really believe that equity is going to um, outperform what the earning rate would be in their, jo- in their job um, and that they completely believed in the plan in the way that the investors were going to. So, um, yeah, so that was, it was a journey though. It's a journey to like, and it's a snowball effect. You know how it is. You know, if we hadn't, you know, landing, um, Graham, the angel investor, like mm. materially helped, um, both my, my learning from him and, um, also just the playbook and also, um, our ability to then recruit people because, well, he added credibility as well to the business. And so it's all a snowball effect. And once you land a few people and the word gets out, then it gets a little bit easier to add more. Yeah, it's de-risking it when other people are on board almost to other people, I guess. Like Graham being one and then other people, as you get those other high-level founders in, the next one that comes on board is probably like, well, if they're in, it's probably not as risky as if it was just one of you. Your view on dilution is interesting because I've always been a solo founder, I guess, since we did the little thing, but it's kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme. And some of the feedback I've had, I've spent in the past four months, I've just been, I don't need to raise money. And like I raised a bit bit of angel money previously for the new business, which he was part of. Um, and then VCs started coming to me. I, th- I think I said this when we had a call a few months ago. I spoke to all the usual VCs because one emailed me, then, you know, fucking they pass you on to the next. And they all seem to know each other. But one of the most common bits of feedback, they, the ones that said no to me, which was a lot of them, was you're a solo founder. And I was like, hold on. I've always been a solo founder. But they didn't just mean that. They also meant the team is too small and, you know, it's probably six months too soon, whatever. But I, I've always thought maybe stupidly, well, you know, if I have a co-founder from day one with 50%, whereas right now I've got 76% having raised a decent amount of money. Obviously, yeah, I mean, maybe I've been thinking about the wrong way as well because I guess 20% of a billion mm-hmm. is a lot more than 50% yeah. of I think 20 million. Sure. I think it's it's just such an art. And I mean, absolutely, if you can build your business to an amazing outcome and you haven't had to do that chop down the middle on day yeah. one, <laughs> you get double the outcome. But um, and I also think that like as you progress through your entrepreneurial career, you you're in a different ability to attract the right talent out the gate and do the right stuff and equip the right people without needing a whole load of co-founders, you know? So in my latest business, I'm a solo founder in Life Supplies because I kind of know much more what I'm doing now and I've been able to 
raise the money and recruit the right like hires at the right stage um without needing to like chop everything right down the middle with a 100% committed like co-founder on on day 0 basically so i think if you can like skip that out then like why not but there's different ways to look at it because yeah. you know do do you have <laughs> it's like it's you know is it a constraint to your business's potential at the moment the fact that you don't have a duplicate of you doing all the stuff that you're not good at is. i think you'd better I, I personally think from the outside and you'd you'd massively benefit from a complementary founder that a complementary co-founder that's massively operationally focused no, I kind of feel like I have that with one of the team members, though. He's, he's as committed as I am. But if you'd had that from the very start, you probably would have moved faster. Yeah, have. maybe. maybe. But if you'd had that on Neon Beach, to maybe go back to that way. That yeah, I guess I feel like my angel hard. investors are co-founders now, in a way, because yeah. I get so much advice from so many intelligent people that have built and sold businesses. You're like the least intelligent one, I guess, for comparison. <laughs> the least experienced one, for comparison. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you kick them out yeah yeah so i fundamentally that feels enjoy like a building win-win. things with people I, I, I enjoy working with it is people. lonely i just enjoy it like i don't really care about selling something for a ridiculous amount of money like en- enough is enough for me like f- i just enjoy doing things with people i enjoy doing working with and take like being on a journey with other people who are, who are obviously they, they have to bring something to the table i wouldn't do it with anybody but like one founder maybe focus really really strong in a, in an operational sense or a technical sense or a creative sense where I'm slightly weaker and then kind of position around that. But even just like the actual camaraderie, I guess, of building yeah, yeah, is really undervalued, I think, in, by a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's my, I mean, on Friday at my uh, flat with my new company, Life Supplies, we had uh, me and our, our team as nine of us full time and we had a celebration there because we hit a milestone and it was it was amazing. It was so much fun. And yeah. that's kind of why you're doing it, basically. Like moments, point, yeah. moments like that. So I'm, I'm on the same page. Yeah. Going back to the business, I feel like we could speak about fundraising. Could be two hours in itself. I find it so interesting. So, in a relatively nutshell, so you, Skin and me, we can come on to life supplies after. You raise a bunch of money after initial proof of concept. How does the next year look, and how, how quickly do you get to like decent scale? And what did the business look like when it? You know, over the past few years, it's been what four years since you yeah, raised what that date, money. What date did you get that, and then how how close to your plan did the next six? Yeah, that's a better question. We closed the money. We raised the money um, late twenty nineteen, and we launched in twenty twenty. Was that um, COVID? Post COVID? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. We basically launched perfect like, timing. COVID arguably. started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We basically launched during COVID. Um, as you can imagine, it was like. Boom. kind of a yeah well it was like a soft not a soft launch but it just took a bit of time for us to yeah. fine-tune some of the early niggles because we launched like effectively seven months after closing that funding round something like that um but what we'd really focused on with our strategy was laying the operational and the technical foundations for scale such that they were never a hindrance on marketing's ability to scale the business and so that put us in a really uh, and we're completely vertically integrated to manufacturing, pick pack dispatch, CS, everything. Advantage. Yeah, everything in-house and build a, a factory in, in Park Royal. So um, all of that was kind of in place and we really did launch it effectively the, the dream time because people were taking self-care more seriously and 
Um, we just had a, a really strong start. We got featured like on This Morning and just loads of stuff happened in that first like trading period. Yep. It took us a bit of time to fine tune, you know how it is, the proposition and just get the right messaging and the right landing pages and the right flows. One thing that we knew we always wanted to do from the get-go was have a really strong incentive in the first month. So with Skin and Me, it's a very, um, it's like a personal transformation that we're selling, effectively. Like this service. You're selling a PT for your face in a way, aren't you, really? Like, that's what I was yeah, yeah. Like, and think what way, works like, well for a, a PT. It's the before and after photos. It's hearing from people that have like transformed their life and how does that make them feel. In our case, we use loads of that in our marketing, but we really wanted to be able to get people a full month supply, effectively for free, yep. so that they could like literally see the results and we thought like that would be a game changer if we can figure that out and so a lot of the work that we did was in designing our own packaging system so that um it's like this measured dose and it can fit through the through the letterbox so we can you don't have to be in to get it we can get in the right postage rates so um you know we find tune cogs in that first month and we basically offer um, I mean, if you go to our Instagram page and look in the bio, you know, it's not hard to find an offer. We basically I've do a free trial. Point loads. I use you as a reference point for loads of people. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, look at this brand. It's good. <laughs> so th that just means that people can try it out in a really low-risk way. And they try it out and they get results because it does work because this is proven medicine. It's the only, like, add the product that we put in some of our treatments called, uh, the ingredient rather, called tretinoin, is the world's most effective, it's like the most effective way to treat skin aging. Like nothing has And do been customers have to, is it like hymns or something? Yeah, you they do a consultation. Through that. They, they answer questions and they upload photos. And then we have a prescribing team that review the consultations. Mm. And if you're suitable for treatment, then they'll create a prescription and a treatment plan. And that goes to the um, pharmacy where they'll create the treatment and then it'll get sent out to you, basically. Is it difficult to, do you have to become like a registered pharmacy effectively to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all that fun stuff. So is we've that got easy or not? Well, I mean, um, it, it's all doable. It, it, it depends how you define easy. So mm. we had to build a, uh, a unit. We had to follow all the regulations. We had to hire the right people. We had to um, like spec it all out in a tight time frame. But we've had like stellar yeah. reviews from the General Pharmaceutical Council. So it depends what you're doing in it. If you're just like dispensing medicine that someone else makes and you're basically just like a cupboard, it's a lot, lot easier. You just need a, yeah. one or two processes. It's a lot easier than literally like manufacturing, basically. Great. I want to sell psilocybin D to C through people's letterboxes. That's always been the, the vision longer term. Obviously, it's a class A drug right now. It's class in, A drug? Yeah, is it, it is, yeah. Is it going to be... Well, look at Australia. Decriminalised last week or something. Decriminalised in most of Canada. I think it's parts of the states but a big difference between decriminalized and you can sell it d to c do you know what i mean so significant time horizon but it's a long it's like a yeah, yeah significant time horizon. that's where i'd like to go longer term though 100 percent. and i guess you would kind of have to be a pharmacy in the same way doing well I, I guess you could do, probably do it in australia now i don't know i don't know it's getting there doing those no things. idea how it's just that's the yeah, plan yeah fascinating market i think yeah. i told you i invested in a one in the u.s the name always escapes um, well Gwella. yes mojo so that's, that's, the, that's the brand, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny, I've been speaking to, well, this fund that invested in them. Hopefully we're nearly there. But 
yeah, I was like, is this not a conflict of interest? Because I'm releasing a gummy. I'm literally a competitor. But apparently not. Big space. Take the, take the my way. numbers are bigger than theirs, for the record. Oh, really? Yeah. I picked the wrong one. So you, you did. You, did. <laughs> you can still come in. The round's still yeah. open. Um, but doing those hard things, again, is enterprise value and moat, isn't it? Like, yeah. Great place to be once you've done it. If you've got if you've got the money, you can get it set up, and you can. Well, that's the thing with Skinnerme. There is a high barrier to entry because you need a lot of capital, and yeah. um, there's just a lot you've got to figure out, really. And so there is just defensibility in. Th- there's a reason why there are a never-ending like swathes of new skincare brands launching, but mm. you don't see Skinnerme competitors popping up. Yeah, you see companies that are personalize this, personalize that, but then you dig in, and they're not. They're not really. They're just yet another. How much did you spend of that money before? I guess you got it moving, and kind of relatively self-sustaining. How much sunk cost before you actually started selling? Yeah, I think we had probably burnt through definitely less than two million. Um, Probably more like one point five when you account for all the capex and all of the setup to get it going. And then the the. The good thing about raising that amount of money was that um, it just meant that we didn't have to think about fundraising for a long time. We, we didn't, frankly, want to think about it again because <laughs> it's such yeah. a distraction for the business. And so that that was the reason why we, one of the reasons why we went big with it. And so the business, once we'd cracked that um, right message and proposition and understood the customer and we got the right offer, we just like really started scaling that effectively and um and we have been you know focused on on the main on the regular channels like facebook's really good for us we do a lot of influencer marketing now kind of wish we'd started that sooner because yeah, it's so a lot of influencer stuff. so good for us and in hindsight it wasn't as obvious as it is now mm-hmm. and um yeah it's it's just, just been a crazy journey but it's worked out really well so far it it goes down a treat with people they love telling their friends about it we get some really like sticky customers who just shout from the rooftops about us and will like religiously and aggressively refer people because they've had such good results and they changing service isn't it yeah well they go on to you know you know we any day on our instagram you can see us reposting people that are saying like you know this is the best thing i've ever used you've changed my life i've been able to let my partner or my husband see me without makeup for the first time mm. in, in years, you know, it can be really, really impactful Powerful, on people's yeah. self, self-confidence. And so I think that, you know, if you can crack that, um, the customers basically do the marketing and the credibility for you. Yeah. It's a snowball effect, isn't it? It's a massive snowball effect. Mm-hmm. You get more and more nodes shouting about you and just exponentially grows. So how, in terms of, it, I, forgive me I don't know your broader offer are you still scaling like a linear offer mm. is it just this kind of one simple funnel you go you, you take the you take that consultation and you get sold on that or have you broadened your offer and you so we've added we added a year ago we added some um, additional products like a moisturizer and a cleanser and another key learning there is that if people trust your brand they will like trust you to cater for more of the regime and 50% of people have already taken that up. So we wish we launched it sooner. <laughs> so it's been great, great for the business, yeah. frankly. And there's demand from customers to do more and more. So we're, you know, we're working on some new products um, at the moment. 
but really the the core business and what we're great at is i i think the principle of like doing one thing really well is something that we've just obsessed over yep. so that's what's enabled us to like like one piece of packaging that's amazing and it does like one job and we've got one consultation flow and uh but it like personalizes and sends you down a lot of different paths but um it's really hard to compete against us against you know on that one thing we've done well for so long quick one fellas you probably heard a few months ago i dropped an e-com course a very fucking guru of me but it's not that i promise you zero to one how to start a brand from scratch with no budget some budget a bit of budget take your idea from a bedroom to reality to potentially seven eight figures in sales like i've done a few times based on my seven years of experience in the trenches and my current experience building my current brand space goods it's no bullshit no frills we've had like 75 people go through so far not a single person that's a refund plenty of people have actually built some seriously impressive shit covers every aspect of the business not just the front end stuff like most gurus on YouTube and Twitter are talking about, not just product marketing and all that shit, but the real shit, the logistics, the back end, the supply chain, the customer service, the finances as well. This covers the whole spectrum, every part, 12 hours of video. If you're interested in scaling a brand, zero to one, actually turning our idea finally into a reality, then click the link below, go check out Learn Real Commerce course and let me know what you think. I'd be glad to have you in there. Let's fucking go. You, you occupy, I think you occupy a really nice spot in someone's mindset as well, like that expert position because of the way that they come into the brand off that consultation piece. They inherently, if again, touching on the point of trusting you, like you, you occupy a position of trust where if you bring out a product, they're probably just going to be like, well, this is going to be the best solution for this problem if I'm having it. And therefore your uptake is probably really strong. But yeah, doing, the doing less better is definitely a thing that I believe in, like, just focus on really nailing one, like, one one skewed product or one, like, offer can take you a long, long way before you need to yeah. really start diversifying. Yeah, could be hard, though, as a founder, because you see opportunity Shiny everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I'm already yeah. starting I still get to get it. that. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> new yeah. products, new guilty. skews, new countries. Did you launch just in the UK? Mm-hmm. I was going to come to that, because you, you mentioned earlier the US market. Obviously, dermatology is almost commoditized. Mm-hmm. Have you launched into that US market yet? No, we're just in the UK at Is the moment. The plans to yeah. do that? Um, maybe, maybe. I think we're still just scratching the surface in the UK, to be honest. There's there's so much yeah, more yeah. we want to do and we're working on some exciting new initiatives at the moment. So, so you physically don't ship outside the UK, you just don't advertise outside the UK? Uh, we don't ship. We, d- we, we only sell in the UK. Skip. I was going to ask that question later because I wanted to dive into quite deep the US element. But yeah, that was like, kind of got to now almost but yeah what is the kind of plans you're gonna say initiatives you got some exciting initiatives coming but yeah well you see the next kind of year two years i think you know we've scaled the business like in a really healthy way and got it to cash flow positive we just raised 10 million just before christmas to uh like bolster the business and support growth over the next year um we you know are, are just trying new stuff out at the moment um We've gotten to a certain stage. We did our first out-of-home campaigns in January. We covered every uh, yeah, tube in London. Yeah, I saw you everywhere. I was going to say, I really liked it. I really enjoyed those ads. A lot of tube ads are really boring and rubbish. That wasn't. Yeah, well, time will tell, like, how well it performs. Mm. But, um, yeah, a lot of people noticed it. I've never had so much, like, inbound, you know, when your whole network mm. is, like, noticing something. How are you tracking uplift on that? Are you isolating London as a location and then trying to track it? Well, obviously, it's, it's difficult. Like, if you're going to run TV ads in America, for example, you might isolate a state and run TV ads to that and then measure your lift mm-hmm. in that location. 
how are you tracking incremental lift off a tube campaign? Because yeah. that's something that obviously... So obviously, there's a direct response. Yeah. Um, like code on there, which we track. Yeah. But yeah, to, track the up, to track the uplift, it, it, it is like, you know, narrowing it down to London and yeah. looking at what the impact is on, on the, the blended costs. So I think we did all those tests at the start of the year, like, like ran all the ads earlier in the year. So I think time will tell over the next yeah, like yeah. month or two what the impact's been. A little bit longer tail, yeah. Just, that's interesting, difficult thing to obviously can never get that granular on it. Like we haven't, um, we're, we're we've got a f- we've got opportunity everywhere. We yeah. could go into retail. We could go international. We could expand more products. Like there's there's lots that we could do, but we're not going to do all of that. But we're going to do some of it. Um, so watch this space. Basically, we just we're still decision making and planning at the moment. Do you think keeping it one country, one channel for as long as possible? is always net beneficial because I've just launched in the EU, for example, because I think Germany could be massive. I want to get into retail. Like I'm getting into retail, but I'm, I'm already thinking, fuck, this is hard to keep track of and like limited funding compared to some. And it's like one mistake and you could fucking sink it all if it all goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I think it really depends on the mode of the business mm. and I so like I don't think it's a blanket no don't do international in the first like two years I think for skin and me ironically um we thought that we were going to do it sooner and we even built in some capabilities like into our tech to account for us going international the way that we print on the packaging is like and like dynamically to mean that the packaging yeah. can be printed in different languages if we want to at source but we've never done anything but print in english and sell in the uk so and even if we wanted to now launch into a new <clears throat> a new country i'm sure that tech work that we did years ago it wouldn't even apply yeah. so back to the point of just like doing one thing really well and not getting carried away we probably did get carried away um but yeah i think it depends on the defensibility of the business if it's truly defensible then i think that um staying like in a single market and um just growing and growing that moat and building your customer base and fine-tuning your proposition like as much as freaking possible and then exporting that into new markets um i just think we've all seen especially in the last few years until the things have pulled back this past year you can just raise a lot of money and go and do 20 things and loads of companies screw it up because it's it's really hard yep. running a startup in the early days and especially manning multiple like strategic initiatives. Just complexity. Like the, the, there's a lot of decisions. There's also a lot of decision, decisions I think you make in business that are irreversible that I under, uh, people don't value. Like, like going, launching a neon sign brand. <laughs> like, yeah, like or even launching a second business or doing like mm. making a big strategic decision that's insanely hard to then go back on if it's like start employing people and it's not impossible but it's it's hard to to reverse a a, a big decision like that um i think yeah like i think some businesses like if you some set some say you're reliant on lower repeat purchase rate or you have something that people buy once or twice in a in a two-year period then you you're going to cap out sooner probably in a market as well so therefore horizontally scaling would be a bigger benefit but i guess your business is set up in a way that you must have a pretty good LTV, pretty good. Yeah, I mean the economics are, are really favorable, like, really strong. That's yeah. what's helped us, like, um, yeah, like raise this recent funding round and and all of that. Um, 
I think that people often, just back to the international piece, they just underestimate, not that I've taken a brand international, I just think they underestimate how much work there is, especially it's like, oh, we'll go and launch in Germany. May, like, maybe some of them make it work, great, but like the amount of complexity and understanding the local regulations and labeling and returns and customs and advertising and just all of that. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd even argue that you're better off if you're going to go anywhere, just go to the US. <laughs> so we're just doing that mm. with the with the brand that I'm involved in directly. Um, we're doing like like good numbers in the UK. We're moving to very the, big numbers. Yeah, big numbers in the UK yearly. Um, but it's uh, sorry, which brand is this? It's, it's a brand I CMO for. So we I CMO for an e-commerce group alongside the agency. So it's a brand called the Essence Vault. Um, it's like a fragrance brand but we we've just literally this week localized to the u.s we're doing like and how, how much did the essence vault do last year for context can you say that i'm not going to say numbers right um i'll i can say off podcast after to because to it's way well, bigger than you listeners think. hate it when people say that yeah. by the way. way bigger than you think connor said that we're on connor said on the podcast that our target this year is 60 million so i can say that revenue um no, sounds, it's so it's big and sorry it's a fragrance it's a fragrance dupe brand, so it's like you can't copyright fragrance, so it's a dupe brand. Um, Got it. And Connor's 27, I always call him the richest man on Twitter. So I jumped, yeah. I jumped. You think he was 50, the Don is just like, the, he's also yeah. an investor in my brand. I jumped he's, into he's a good that, guy. To, to work. we're trying to move that. He's using, gonna be a billionaire, I think. To build that into, so we own the supply, he owns the supply chain 3PL, and similar setup, not, not mm-hmm. as complex as you. Um, and we're trying to then take that and build it into like an e-commerce group where we launch brands, a couple of brands a year, and then hopefully, obviously, not every one of those is going to work. Bit of a big vision, but the next hope super group. interesting. So and I've always my business hero, frankly, if I were to pick one, not you know that I think about it as the word hero. It's a bit cringe, but is Bernard Arnault, the founder of LVMH, because yeah, yeah. Um, I mean he's not also the, yeah also the richest man in the world. Yeah, yeah, he probably is depending on the day. But um, his genesis isn't necessarily as a classical entrepreneur, but um, just they've done that in a really short amount of time. Yeah, and I love story. that he is. Uh, you know, I've got two companies. I'm not CEO in both. I couldn't be CEO in both. I'm chairman in one and CEO in the other. And Richard Branson isn't the CEO of all of his companies. And Bernard Arnault is a group CEO, and he's just got, like, great teams doing great stuff. And I just love um, how they can have, like, such individual creativity in each company. They get these economies of scale across the whole group, and they just – it's like a snowball effect of, like of, – of, like control in the industry basically it's fascinating that's what we're trying to do basically obviously you've got to accept that it's dtc it's hard you're not gonna not every brand you launch is going to get product market fit but kind of operationalize and systemize that concept to product market fit process that's what i was trying to do when i was running you then hire a team and you take it if it doesn't work you sunset and just move on to the next project and try and rinse and repeat that's fascinating have you have you do you know any companies that have done that really well I know if I know some that have done it in different the hot group, formats. I guess they bought a lot of brands. Mm. A lot more do it in a private equity sense. They'll roll up a lot of Amazon roll ups, and there's a lot of DTC roll ups now as well. Um, I'm not a massive fan of that because you don't own the message, you don't own the ecosystem. Like, I think you can spot opportunities with the right R and D structure and the right product development structure to to build up from the ground up at a low cost and get proof of concept fairly quickly, and then. You can systemize the growth of a D2C brand as well. There's a lot of similar inputs with variable change. So, like, obviously, market position, vertical, 
content, but like what makes a good funnel, what makes a good landing page, what makes there's it's it's similar in terms of skill set. So trying to build like a hit squad that kind of does the first part and then of really talented, strong operators that do that first product market fit piece. And then once we've got it past that point, we'll build a team and, and put it in place. Super interesting. So would you imagine the sort of people doing growth are coming into work on a Tuesday and working on like more than one of your brands at one time? No, we'd keep the... We'd, so I, I think there's there's some elements of this roadmap that we've not... We're early stages in this, obviously. We've got like one or two brands, one, the the Beast brand that is the essence of all, and then we've got a couple of, of other ones that are in the works, all launched but small scale. Um, I'd build, I'd have them working on one project until it, you got it to that point where you'd then put the team in place. and then But then beyond that, once you had multiple, you'd probably have teams a bit like an agency structure you'd have teams in each kind of vertical or, ver- or channel maybe and I, I don't know like to be honest transparently we've not got to that stage yet so i'm not i'm not sure what to move things along <laughs> i feel like we could do three hours at this rate we haven't even got to i was about to <laughs> both to of these businesses what are you gonna say to, i was about to touch on the us we, we've we've moved it we've tried <coughs> to move into the us to out back to that tried to move from uk to us launch this week and it's just i, I think what's good at, great in the uk is good in the us for dtc like the standards are higher it's, you don't appreciate when you're at that scale how much brand awareness has an impact on conversion rate, success, and like how much repeat customer rate even has, a, has an impact on your conversion rate on your site. So you don't know what your baselines are when you go into a market. So yeah, I, to go to that point quickly, mm-hmm. I do think there's a l- just unknowns and complexity. Maybe I should stick in the UK for now then, just sell more fucking mushroom coffee to everyone else <laughs> first. It's probably a better strategy. So roughly four years, what was the growth like? I mean, you don't have to say exact numbers. You can if you want. It's more interesting. But at least in terms of X to X, uh, you know, what yeah. did that look like trajectory-wise? I, I haven't seen um, another DTC company. I see like, all the decks, and we all hear the metrics of them all. Mm. haven't seen one that's performed like, close to as well as ours. Um, we've shipped now like millions of boxes to people in the UK. We've grown like... 100% year on year in the past year. Um, and yeah, I think it, um, go, I'm trying to think what metrics I can share without giving you all the juice. Um, but it's been like, when did we properly so start I guess scaling? I, maybe a good way to answer be how much bigger was the second year compared to the first and then the third and then the fourth, if it has been four, four years, right? No, no, it, it's, it's been, um, it, well, in terms of trading, it's been just just over two years of actual trading because we were yeah. f- we were fully like launched in the summer of twenty twenty. Right. So sorry, like two and a half years. So yeah, the first year was like from zero to like a punchy number pretty damn quickly, and then we've more than doubled that in the subsequent year, and we're on track. Uh, you know, we're on a similar trajectory at the moment, and so. Investors have come in on the basis of their belief in our ability to hit that. And how big do you think it can be? And I, I guess, you know, and also your involvement, because you've started another brand, which is the one I noticed on LinkedIn maybe a year ago. Mm-hmm. Have you exited from, I've, you, you completely got your shareholding and you just built mm-hmm. a team and moved yeah, on yeah. to the next thing? I, I haven't sold a single share. I'm still the biggest individual shareholder um, in Skin and Me. And um, I'm chairman now of the board. Uh, so I've got 
like my board involvement and I support the leadership team. But we've got an awesome team there, well incentivized, scaling the business. And I'm now all in on my next thing. I've always wanted to have more than one business. I don't think that you can do. I basically think that you like if you want to get a lot done, you can't run everything yourself and you can't run yeah. all of your companies. And the conventional thing is, oh, you know, be CEO for like five to 10 years. And like, like back to my point earlier, like no one's going to make the big moves for you. So you just got to do them yourself. So, um, you know, and it just goes back to like planting the seed early on with the right team. You know, I couldn't have moved into chairman and started another business if we didn't have an amazing team. So, yeah, at much smaller scale. But that's where, again, I'm in my agency. Like I'm very top level, very much like removed, very much kind of top down decision making probably nowhere near, nowhere near the same level mm-hmm. um just strategic yeah That's interesting Where, what would, what did your path to that look like how what did your role when you first started and how quickly did you kind of progress to that and what did the roles in between those two points look like yeah so i mean i was ceo throughout like all of the funding rounds and all that and through the launch i then my next role was executive chairman which is you know it's um it's whatever you want it to be. Were you ever basically. in the weeds of any like deep into say deep what, into what while I was exec chair? Yeah, like or or at any point were you like super super deep on sort of growth or super deep on sort of logistics or? Yeah, I mean, I my areas of passion and my strongest areas are brands, customer experience, most like culture and leadership. But I'm just I'm just like obsessed with like nailing things for the customer. Yeah. And it takes time to get there. You know how it is. And so, um, like, I would, (laughs) yeah, I would much rather try to figure out what the right thing to say is to the customer at the right time or the right creative to be using or the right messaging to be putting in the boxes in order to deliver, like, an amazing experience and to drive better retention than I would be looking at, say, like, um, you know, the, the Facebook performance in the last... 24 yeah, yeah, hours yeah. basically it's not where your leverage and time comes either yeah. but I, I also think it varies over time so you know you know how it is in the early days you've kind of got to do everything so T-shirt, I'll be like yeah. literally coordinating um, like sourcing ingredients and finding a factory and like ring up suppliers and dealing with legals and all of that but then as soon as the business is in a position to have people do the things that I'm not good at, I'll just gravitate towards branding, customer experience, basically. Two strong places, especially customer experience, which I think a lot of people under undervalue or leverage. I don't mm-hmm. Technical issue going on. Um, yeah, I think interesting. Then you've obviously moved to chairman, and now you've moved on to new venture of life supplies. I haven't. That's the only business that I didn't have. Like actually research before we jumped on it mm-hmm. so we could say a bit about that like yeah sure what's the mission there yeah i mean i've always been really interested in the personal like the consumer goods category basically and i've always had this vision of building the um lvmh of like consumer goods yeah. right nice. so um you look at companies like procter and gamble i've always felt like they can't be around forever in their current form. You know, they don't innovate. They have, like, um, these brands that do, like, I think P&G have, like, over 10 brands that do more than a billion dollars in sales. Um, I think Pampers is the biggest, isn't it? And they're f- Is it Pampers? Is they own Pampers? One of those two big, one of the two bigs, 
John, either Johnson Johnson or P and G. Yeah, yeah, I can't. Both of those. I, I, think, I think they have pampers. Do they have pampers? Probably. Maybe, Maybe Kimberly Clark or something. Maybe anyway, wrong, but their funnel, obviously, they're, they're, that's a billion. That's a billion pound brand, and that funnel is like you get given them at the hospital in America mm-hmm. straight away. It's like enter the funnel as exactly. soon as you're born. So like really? they're really smart with a lot of that stuff. But I'm um, just convinced that they are not going to win over the new generation because the new generation cares about stuff that people didn't care about way 100%. back. You know, they care about the values of the brands. They care about the um, look and feel of the brands. They care about what's in the product. They care about the ingredients, the transparency of the supply chain, the sustainability and all that. And the companies like P&G, they are retrofitting sustainability onto brands that don't have sustainable heritage, but it doesn't necessarily fly with the new generation. Yeah, I think there's also a degree of individuality in the new generation, whereas the older generations were sheep. You can see this, not not sheep's, like a negative word but if you look at like pre-social media they had no source to follow kind of pulls through to education like everyone went on a very similar path everyone purchased the same things it was seen as like normal or great to be like buying the same things or items or brands and it was like a status symbol almost and now it's like i feel like people now really value being part of like a smaller brand or purchasing from smaller smaller brands fashion's a good example of that like a lot of people buy would a lot of people anti-fast fashion anti-fast fashion movement mm-hmm. there's the same in like supplements nutrition and that's i, I can completely see that in your mindset there i can completely agree with it i think it's like a breakup of those massive conglomerate. you might cover this when i was having a break um are you going deep to see with live supplies mm-hmm. yeah we did to see only yeah I, I just think you can get to basically does the aov work on that well, we're working on that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there is a, uh, my, my general philosophy is that in D2C, given how fast the feedback loops are, you should just stick to D2C in the early days and you can in like at least get a 5 million in revenue. I just don't think yeah. there's much of a reason not to, unless yeah. you've got a very unique business case for why you should not be. Um, the, like a- absolutely the AOV can work the, the only reason i'm like saying we're still working on it is because we only a week ago launched any more than our first product you right. know at the start of the year up until like two weeks ago we only had uh our first product on the website which nice. is like 13.99 what was that it's a refillable roll-on deodorant right okay yeah nice. so it's a it's an antiperspirant so um, going up against wild native well we are in, fussy, in all in, these brands in some ways we are but not Really, it's a liquid. It's a liquid roll-on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the difference between us and companies like, say, uh, Fussy and and Native is, they're. I don't know if you guys have used these products, but that's a natural deodorant. I used Wild because I was going to launch a competitor like two years ago, but then I thought I don't give a fuck about deodorant. I'm not launching this. You make content, but I did try it. How did you find it? And are you still using it? I'm not still using it. Um. I think I just wasn't, first it wasn't a target market, which am I, I mean, I think their target market is kind of like tree huggers. I could be wrong, <laughs> but it, it basically didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought. So what have you gone back to? Just standard, sure. Honestly, like the most basic mm-hmm. bloke so, stuff. So, so we are the solution for someone like you. So there are 30, mil- 30 million people in the UK that use antiperspirant and they need the performance of an antiperspirant. It stops you from sweating. They yeah. will not. They can try a brand Sounds like similar Fuzzy. logic with, with Skin and Me. So it actually works. Yeah, yeah. They need something that works. And so um, there's this. You've got these challenger brands that are like completely natural, 
And a lot of people are up for that, but like take that example, deodorant. Mm. Natural deodorant does not, it, well, with some people it does, but it depends definitely on your body type. Good. For me, I will definitely still sweat because it's not intended to stop you sweating. I think it's meant some, to be like an onboarding period almost to it. There is an adjustment <laughs> period. You use it for like three, that's, don't know, that, was a, that was a much better way of saying spent, that. Spent too <laughs> much time yeah. in e-commerce. Too much, too deep into the, too deep in the agency. But yeah, there's meant to be like an, almost an uptick, like a period that you need to just push through that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but our position is that like someone like Matt is yeah. never going to switch to a completely natural deodorant because it doesn't work for him. So we either get him using something that works in a sustainable format, so yeah. a refillable roll-on, um, or he just continues the like single-use culture that he's using, and whether it's a spray or a roll-on, he just continues using that. And so our position is we're not if you're a 100% eco-warrior that needs completely natural, yeah. please continue using it. We sit in the like middle. Early adopters, they are in your more, I guess, potentially more mass market. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of, I mean, it's gone really well so far. The yeah. We've only been selling it for like Q1. And um, it's clear that a lot of people want something that enables them to be more responsible and lower their impact, but not lose the performance. I'm probably going to take a look at it because yeah, same. that's probably mm-hmm. exactly what I'd I've got one in my bag. I'll dig it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. For it. <laughs> Live, a live on set um, sample. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm what, find out. Are you selling it on thirty day roll in subscription, yeah? Oh, is it, uh is yep. It so people frame? sign up, they get a pre filled bottle in the first month and we encourage people to take a refill plan. And then uh a month later their first refill arrives and then there's a cadence from there. Nice. Basically. Um and what's the roadmap for that? Obviously you said you've did you just launch second product? Uh, no, launch? we launched a range of products a week right, ago. Okay. That's why I'm saying we're still fine-tuning like how we yeah, get yeah. the AOV up. And we've got some really, like, we're running a bunch of landing page tests every week at the nice. moment. So we've launched um, a body wash, a hand wash, a facial cleanser, a body lotion, shampoo, conditioner. And you just go in Facebook ads? Or are you uh, mixing uh, it up? Yeah, at the moment. We're on Google as well. Yeah. But... Um, I, I just don't think there's a need for us to do any more than that for the Definitely time being, not. basically. And at least until we've got, like, um, you know, much closer to product market fit and got the right messaging. Yeah, yep. interesting. Never tried TikTok. We've we've dab we dabbled with TikTok. Doesn't and work for me. We've got so you mentioned Jumpstart. We hired a great marketing mm. exec through um through Jumpstart, and he's been he's a great video editor. And so we've we had some like organic success on TikTok, yeah. but I guess where we what we feel at the moment is um we shouldn't pour too much energy into it just yet. Cause when we do it, I want us to do it um, like really well and yeah. do it with a lot of like consistency and focus. And I think we're just a bit stretched at the moment. One of our, one of my agencies is TikTok DC agency. We just do TikTok through that vehicle. And it's, we usually say like, if you're not spending over hundred K a month on Facebook efficiently and have a very clear idea of who you, who your client is, who, you, who your that's customer it. is. That's a really nice, Package as well. That is cool. So you that's pop, that's pop that. Egg. And then you refill it from there. Simple. So you buy this once. Nice. Link in um, buyer. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. There you go. Yeah. You can keep that. I can actually keep that. You can. Oh, nice. thanks. <laughs> I was going to actually order give, it. Give me I'll, a neon sign in return. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would never arrive. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Nice way to it. I think it's a yeah, cool, cool. That's a much more cool convenient brand. shape because the natural ones I tried, they're like literally flat. It's like rubbing. Mm hmm. Well, Almost rubbing is, like soap against your arm. In the UK, so there's this company that you, sounds like you guys. Is that know used, of, by the way? It's not used. All no. right, cool. Just, just <laughs> checking. It smells nice. Uh, yeah, 
I, uh, I, I respect you more than to give you my like, uh, <laughs> used deodorant. Um, but the company in the US that you mentioned, Native Deodorant, they launched a natural stick deodorant. But in the US, stick is much more popular than roll-on. Interesting. Um, it's actually the inverse. You've got stick, roll-on, aerosol in the US. Yeah, Here yeah. it's aerosol, roll-on, stick. Mm. And so more people want that format than want a refillable stick format. Yeah. So... Um, we're super excited to start scaling it. Basically, so that, that's essentially like the sure roll-on that I would use, but just in a reef in a friendly format. It's refillable. It is, and it's got it's got the ingredient, the salts in it that deliver sweat-stopping performance. But it also has like hemp shives in it. We get these hemp stalks from Champagne in France that provide like an additional layer of protection, and these fermented sugars. So it's it's got natural properties in it as well. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Really cool. I can make sense why you listen to Moise Ali podcast now. He's, he's <laughs> this hilarious. feels like I, I find him great iPhone of deodorants. Like you've got a good product design team. I'm I'm guessing. I appreciate product. I think there's not enough discussion. We've said this. It might just be the Twitter sphere, but I think in like young entrepreneurship, particularly D 2 C, there's not enough talk about product. It's all about marketing. I think I think that's you can't polish a turd. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it's going to move long. as well in the next few years. Like until now, the the competitive advantage up until like iOS fourteen was just being a really good marketer. Yeah, and you could just shovel exactly. shit basically. But now it's like the competitive advantage is, or it or it was products still at that point, but you could get competitive advantage purely yeah, through get marketing better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. I really think like logistics products manufacturing process just customer experience owning, owning those driving cogs down. That's a much bigger competitive advantage and will be the m- bigger competitive advantage for the f- in the future because it's just like it's harder you to also do. just can't build a dtc brand on, f- on first order anymore no no you can't maybe you, you can with a 300 pound product but well you can short term but it's yeah. very long very small short time horizon on a business that yeah. people don't buy from twice i completely agree i i love product design i think that in our case we with life supplies could have launched much sooner if we just took off the shelf packaging and did everything like every, like everyone else. But it just doesn't motivate me to spend the next chunk of my life doing that. Yep. So, you know, we raised 5 million. We got some amazing product designers on board through this agency called Pentagram that we've worked with now. For the, they've got equity in the business. We've worked with them for years. And we just don't compromise when it comes to product because our vision is if you go into your typical bathroom, Everything in there is designed for the shelf in the supermarket. It's not designed for your bathroom. So we want to get rid of all of those shouty brands and replace them with stuff that you don't have to hide away when your guests come around and replace it with the Aesop hand soap. And we can only do that if we, like, cultivate desire, basically. And to do that, we just need awesome design. It needs to be a system. It needs to be sleek. It needs to all connect together. So that's basically what we're on the road to, to creating. I think that's a great way of thinking as well. Really great way of thinking. Almost like a fashion mentality to a to a to a bathroom product, like a minimalist, clean look. I would honestly, my my ideal for the next few years, I get to the point where I can just sit in a polished concrete floor office in Fitzrovia and fucking design products. Maybe you should get a job. Well, no, I should just <laughs> I should just hire a proper team. But it's hard; it's, it takes time to get there, doesn't it? Um, I'm definitely in the trenches what, right now. What sort of products? As in products for my brand, but like. Spend more time, basically being in a position where I don't have to be in the trenches 15 hours a day, which I am and I have been for like the past five years, but there we go. So I can actually just stop and fucking think about 
because I'm a designer at heart. That's like where it comes from. I'm a creative, creative first, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. Creative Not necessarily a product designer, but like I've built competence in, you know, whole, the whole brand, all the products, the website is all done by mm-hmm. me. So I never spent a penny on it, which is probably a competitive advantage in a it's, way. It's a great brand. When, when I met you, that was one of the things I said. I, I genuinely commend what you've done with limited resources and you've created a brand that is really distinct in a crowded category. It's definitely very distinct, yeah. You're, you're a brand builder. Like You are a brand builder. You're, your brand is a story. It's a connection. It's a feeling within a customer that you cultivate with what you're putting out, like a message, a product. And what you're very good at that, like you've proved that. It's like you just need the other, you just need some people to do some of the balls. Yeah, and I just need someone it. that knows what they're doing to run the business so we don't <laughs> run out of money so I can, can, can actually have like reasons to make another product yeah. but yeah we'll get there it's d- definitely product that excites me most though product and making 80s movies with beautiful girls that don't text back <laughs> what's the so obviously you've launched those that that range what's the kind of say mm-hmm. again year two year roadmap on that side where, where do you where do you kind of see that going yeah sure we want to um start by owning the whole bathroom basically yep. all of the all of the essentials you'd expect to find in a hygienic person's bathroom basically so we're not talking anti-wrinkle eye cream we're talking like like loo roll mouthwash toothpaste hair care so and and so on and so forth wild are compared to them i think they're expanding into that space yeah yeah i guess so um i guess the is there is there many others kind of in the uk that you think are not a threat but trying to do the same thing well Someone asked me the other day, like, who's your biggest competitor? And I think founders always default to the other startups. I'm like, well, the other startups have a slither of the market. If you look yeah. at any of the Mintel reports, it's Procter & Gamble and Unilever mm-hmm. that get all of the sales still. Even yeah. though in our bubble in London, it can seem like the startups are swallowing up everyone. Yeah, true. So we still look at the big players as our big competitors. And most, and our target customer isn't currently using our, like, like fussy and wild in these companies. Some yeah. of them are, but mm. most most of them actually aren't yet. And we're their first step into sustainability. So um, it's it's a huge category. I think that we're doing things a bit differently. So like I said, we could have launched much sooner if we just wanted to launch. We could have launched with, say, just that, but we put a lot of time, resources, investment, and planning into building a whole range of products. And it's really freaking hard. Like yeah. to just the amount of moving parts, the supply chain complexity, the unexpected last minute problems that happen with a thing that you think you're about to launch and then you find out it doesn't even work or something goes wrong and then you've got Mm. to retool and all of that fun stuff. So we've deliberately just tried to get as much of the range ready in the early days so that when people hit our website, and our website definitely today doesn't reflect this, like it's going to go through a hell of a lot of change over the next like one to two months. But we want people to hit the website and think, ah, I get it. Like this is just like one click Congruent and I message, can and I can yeah. get this like transformational box for my bathroom and it's just it's appealing and it's exciting. It's not like a compromise and oh I'll do my bit for the planet and I'll yeah. become a bit of an eco warrior. Like it should be an upgrade, not a downgrade. Yeah. So and that lifts your AOV. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So strategic wise. It the thing I'm well. genuinely most excited about at the moment is figuring out how to get AOV up. Because yeah, yeah. it, it, it just involves everything that I really enjoy. It's like, how do you make this look really appealing? How do you get the right messaging? How do we yeah, convince I, you emotionally to think, oh, my word, that that is the, yeah, that, much like, um, do you guys know Athletic Greens? I'm oh, sure I'm do. obsessed with them. Yeah. Probably, I, I take how, it every day. It's problem how, solving, yeah. isn't, isn't like it? They are like, convincing people to spend 80 quid a month yeah, yeah. on and this I do. powder. Yeah, yeah and you do. And I tell everyone. And I, I 
reverse engineer their funnel every day. I think that's... And I copy their landing pages. Yeah, yeah. Have you used Replo? Yes. Yeah, yeah it's in there. I've literally, the this week, <laughs> I spent about yeah, five yeah, hours last night. Page that was like, oh, I've made enough, like, so really? I'm hiring someone to do pages. And I, I always like to do little shit tests. So, so I hired this guy for work as like a little trial. I was like, all right, do me a test page. He spends like three days on it. Little did he know that in three hours, I'd done a better page than him myself. So I'm like, ah, not good enough. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a cunt. But Replo's good. It's very good. Yeah, it's really good. So easy to use. Yeah, yeah. It's just so, so easy and athletic, low cost these athletic days. Athletic Greens are definitely one of the good, uh, you know, we said earlier about doing one thing really well. Three, like, well, one skew, isn't it? Basically. I mention them to everyone. I, I say I want to be, I, 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 reference, I reference three brands, actually. I reference Athletic Greens, Huel, and Trip. Huel's and I say awesome. I want to be the fourth in that lineup of mm-hmm. greens, supplements, and CBD. I want to be the mushroom version in what I believe a category-defining, maybe Trip less so, but Athletic Greens and Huel. Obviously, they're not one thing anymore, but I think they did one thing first very fucking well. Yeah, Hugh, I, I bring up Huel a lot as a good example of And I've, a, I've been a six-year customer of theirs. Oh, really? Literally, yeah. It's a, it's My a, LTV is crazy. You know, it's a good example of a um, brand that has scaled past 100 million revenue yeah. on just native Shopify with the native Shopify yeah. checkout. Because I don't know if you went through all this process of should I be headless or should I not and do all this fancy customization. And companies out there have done all the hard work like in the Shopify ecosystem yeah. and you can just plug it all in and you're away. And I'm sure Huel have a tech team. I don't know if they do, but mm. the site is pretty straightforward and it's using off the shelf technology. Yeah. So product again. Like product is so good that it, it just like exactly. product is that's what enough, people come to you for. Away all of the fr- like it, friction only exists if you have to hard sell a product, I feel like people won't bounce out of your checkout if they want your product enough. And so that's true. What, and it's like if you can cultivate that on the ad or the front end or where they see the product, mm-hmm. who sells it to them. Like I, if you can get to a point where the perceived value is so high, no matter how much friction in your checkout is there, they're still going to buy it. I completely agree. And, it, and I bought a gift for someone. I bought this like lip gloss on Christine Dior a few weeks ago, and it was an absolute shocker of a of a yeah. of a process. But I'm never not going to buy it because the it's like. This is the brand. This is their mm. own website. It was like it was built in like 1998 or something, and everything yeah. wasn't working properly. But like, it doesn't really matter. It's got off. It has. Just move it a little bit. You were back. Just like tw- I don't know what's going on with these. Just, uh, yeah, we we'll get the last five minutes. No, you're back. back yeah. um, don't touch it again. Yeah, I think that's massively undervalued. He'll <laughs> make most of their money off the drinks in supermarkets. So do you know the, the one times? Do they really? Apparently, yeah. apparently, yeah. Maybe most of their revenue, but is it? I'm pretty sure it's most. Is it? I don't know. I can't remember. I was reading about it, but Super yeah, interesting. a significant chunk of... Now what an uplift that must have driven for that. I spoke to some big fund in Germany who didn't invest in me. They said they nearly did, but they just couldn't get it over the line next time. And they were saying that Athletic Greens isn't profitable. I don't know how they know this, but they told me. This, they said it's 15 years old, not profitable. 15 years old? It's very yeah, old. It's, it's really it's old. It's not a startup. It was started a long time ago. Wow. They only yeah. got, they went through this. I've seen, I, di- I, did, I didn't know about them before then, but I've read into them since seeing them. Cause yeah, I, I, only, I only saw them a the year way, ago. Yeah, it? the way I've got like exposed to them is I went through like a six-month period where pretty much every fucking ad on my Instagram was Athletic Greens yeah. four or five times a day. Yeah. And then... They were in every single podcast I listened to, Huberman, yeah. Rogan, so all the big podcasts. It was them, and then the Facebook ads just vanished. I've not seen a Facebook ad from them in months, and whether they just heavy exclude me, I don't know. And I then, get them every day. Do you? I'm a customer. 
That's, uh, that's very, it's interesting, but I, I, don't, I haven't read into the financials, but yeah, they've been around for a long, long time. It doesn't surprise me they're not profitable today, because j- just given that they, I think they raised like over yeah, 100 million yeah, and they're probably yeah, like yeah. going hev- deliberately heavily loss making into growth, growth yeah. mode. But um, yeah, I didn't know they're that old. Recharge yeah, really old. told me they had um, 300,000 subs on £80 a month. It's 24 million a month. You probably shouldn't have been telling you They that. told you that? <laughs> <laughs> you probably just got someone sacked. I'm not using Recharge anymore, um, so it's off the record. They, yeah, they, there's a quote on the website. I think it's Huberman says that he started using them in either 2011, 2015. Yeah, they pay him a million years. a year, so yeah, I'm sure yeah. he'll say anything. Yeah. yeah. Really? <laughs> fucking no. That's obviously, yeah, they've been around for a while. Longer than you think. You don't have yeah. to pay him anything to go copy and paste and just change <laughs> Huberman's quote on your landing page <laughs> in Ruffalo. That's free. For a week or Broad. so. Um, and they get an email. Yeah, that's interesting. But they are, they are, they are, I guess, I like, yeah, I really like the brand. I'll look into it in more details, but excited to see where it, where it goes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just segue into one other thing that I read, obviously. It ties into a bit of what we've discussed here, is the, like, a big part of, of what I read around you and even into some of the articles was around, like, te- encouraging British entrepreneurs to think bigger and kind of push that kind of, uh, definitely a British angle to it. From what I was reading, so mm-hmm. what's your kind of thoughts there? Is that something you kind of involved in actively, or is it just something you want to kind of? Yeah, I don't. Like I said, this is the first time I've ever sat yeah. in front of cameras and all that, so I don't like put time into media. But occasionally, I'll post something, and I spend like I'm sure you guys do. I help like emerging entrepreneurs out, like to the extent my diary allows. Yep. But I just think in general, people are conditioned to think quite small in the UK ecosystem yeah. is what I find. Tall and syndrome. Compared to the US especially, I think. Yeah, have you spent time in San Francisco? A little bit. Not been yeah, there a few times, yeah. It's, it's different, it's just a different mentality. Yeah, and I know everyone says that, but you you have to go and just f- like experience yeah. it. Don't just listen to people like us on a podcast saying go. go and it's so, so different. And you'll just even be in an Uber and like you chant to the drive and just everyone is thinking big. It's like, we're going to change the world yeah. and we're going to, and sure. I mean, I think some companies over the last year have had the rug pulled out from under them and they were just like built on hot air and it was all vision and there was no actual underlying Last business. Sure. I was literally yeah. upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You spent 2 million on Coldplay at the fucking, <sighs> someone no. chain smokers. So, that was it. Chain, chain smokers. smokers. Yeah. He had a party and spent 2 million of investors money on chain smokers. To I would it. still back that guy. Absolutely. If outrageous. I had the money to do Is this so. the competitor to Bolt? Uh, no, it's fast checkout. It was like a um, the what, one click checkout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like bo- bolt. Oh, like not bolt, right. no bolt taxis. No, you know that Ryan Breslow guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he's yeah, the yeah. founder of Bolt, and that's the one. Oh, he's on Twitter, isn't he? Oh, Twenty seven or something. God, his tweets make so much more sense. I thought he founded Bolt Taxis. <laughs> I'm not even sure. <laughs> 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 I've been reading it like that. Just doesn't relate. This nah, taxi company definitely. that I've been no, using. That's um, that's some like Eastern European guy. Oh, that's a revelation. That's so funny. Right, okay, makes sense. But I know there was two, neck and neck, and yeah. then one of them overnight just went... Yeah, they just went bust. Busto, basically. It was him. That's impressive. It's a bit like... Um, Burning 100 mil. The guy, uh, WeWork founder as well, document. The, the yeah, yeah. TV yeah, well, he's starting that new thing now, whatever it's called. Yeah. Some crypto thing. Yeah. But in, in general, I just... I love entrepreneurship. I love, like, high-energy, like, founders. I think people just need to be... Have their system shocked a bit. I think the strategy I was talking about with fundraising, it's like, you know, you're only limited to what you've been conditioned to believe by the people that you spend time with. And in London, if you go to founder events, it is in general small-minded thinking. Yep. It just is. And it frustrates me a bit because um, you get, like, 
the energy of the people you spend time with rubs off on you. And so I often find that I'm the one that's having to like crank things up mm. and it's not like whereas in san francisco they make you feel like small-minded and then you start thinking oh my word i can have a much bigger impact with this business maybe i can raise more money or maybe i can take like more risks did you raise money overseas no nope. or large in the uk or all in the all, uk, all in the UK. Definitely reckon some of that comes back to poker. To go full circle to the start, mm. of this, like to the start of this, I don't know if you paid with a lot of Americans or that just that whole process of poker. I want to get de- an America trip, but like you said like de-risk. Mm-hmm. I think Americans are inherently less risk averse than the UK. The UK's op- like hundred percent eternal optimism, massive pessimism. Even when you sell into people in America, take my money. Like um, UK people are just pessimistic and like always like worst case scenario like you're gonna burn me etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So you can see how that it is a shame. Yeah, that, that kind and of ev- yeah, everyone's different. Like some founders aren't like me, and yeah. they don't want to go commit their whole life and go all in. I just would kick myself if I felt like I hadn't given it 110 percent because I wouldn't have. I want to know what I'm capable of, basically, and that's not for everyone. Like yeah. I'm sure you guys, like yeah. the amount of sacrifices <laughs> we make. You don't have any time really outside of running like your company. It's all consuming. Um, so it's not for everyone, but I think there's a lot of founders that could get more done um, if they were surrounded by the right culture. You know, there's this guy always sticks out at me. We didn't actually raise money from him, but I, I met him as part of a Skin of Me funding round called Oliver Samwer. Do you know this guy, the German Samwer brothers? You don't hear so much about them lately, but. Samwer? Yeah, yeah. They're a bit infamous because they are known for like they're known for cloning businesses oh I did, did oh is it rocket internet germany yeah, rocket yeah, internet yeah. guys they cloned ebay not ebay Some yeah yeah they did, did they did or was it facebook or maybe both i think it was ebay ebay's yeah. the one i've heard about sold, sold it in it like 40 of, days or something something like that yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah anyway i like pitching him um we we had a load of competitive tension in the end and picked another fund but um where the like terms were better but he just more than anyone just like pushed us to think bigger and was like come on let's go yeah we can like do this in this amount of time and i'm like this is so inspiring and every other like vc that we'd be meeting was like mm, yeah well where could this go wrong and can we deep dive into your financial model <laughs> like mm. it was just like such worlds apart and but he was an operator for that him. had built uh, he's Some a billionaire days, yeah 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 but well, he'd done loads of companies yeah, like yeah, since then yeah. i think um so yeah, I kind of just love the idea, you know, you mentioned at the start about, like, I love the idea of having some sort of DDC event someday. I also just love the idea, when I've got a bit more time in my hands, of somehow, like, giving back a bit to the new generation of entrepreneurs and just encouraging them. To, I know I didn't have that yep. at Northumbria Uni or at school. Like, you know, you had to, like, figure it all out for yourself. No one really, like, pushed me to open my mind to just, like, start something. Yep. Um, anyway, rant over. Yeah. All right, to come to a close surely because we'll be here for about seven years otherwise it's a good episode <laughs> so on that then do you have is there an end game is there a midterm game like, do you have a specific goal with, with the two brands that we've discussed um, where do you see that those going is there a number you'd like to hit an exit position something yeah i i kind of came out of my 20s thinking that i've learned loads of business skills and i've made some money but um, I've just like really wasted a lot of time, frankly, and I should have stepped out of this business years before. So I set this goal of having two billion pound companies in my thirties and I'm now 36. And one of them is like, uh, valued at a high number. Um, and 
that's on the right path and we're on a path to, you know, we, we've set out a plan to achieve 100 million pound revenues in that business and we're, we're um, on that trajectory. My new business is still in the early days, but it's a huge market. So I want to build these companies to like the biggest possible size, basically. I don't have like a personal number of like, I must make this much. Um, you know, we've all been on our own journeys. I realized when I made some money, uh, you know, a little while ago that I the money actually doesn't. I know everyone says this, like anyone that's watched any YouTube videos of people that have done business. We've all seen business people say, it's not about the money. The money doesn't make you happy, but you kind of have to figure that out yourself. So like, I kind of know that, but I still want to achieve the biggest possible outcomes. But just because, like you were saying, it's addictive, it's fun. I love creating a new customer experience. I love getting loads of Trustpilot reviews. I love, like, getting to the top, and I love, like, winning, basically. Problem and solving in a way as well. Like Yeah, yeah, really like, figuring out how to get people to convert their whole bathroom to this and stick around and stay retained. Yeah. It's mm. really hard. Yeah. And that's a challenge that I've taken on, basically. But ultimately, I don't want to be, I want to be in the Bernard Arnault position. You know, the um, or the Richard Branson position in terms of like just having excellent people like running the operation because I'm not like I'm like you. I'm really good in the very early days. I can set things up from scratch. I can figure out, solve all the problems. I can do everything. Um, but I much prefer having someone like really operational, like running the company, and then I can focus on brand and customer experience and um, the strategy and the culture yeah. and all of that. So that's the position I want to get a, I want to get into. Um, if we can turn life supplies into like the LVMH of consumer goods and have multiple brands in the way that you were talking about, yeah, I definitely see us acquiring brands and bringing them into the fold, developing new brands. Um, that'd be like, yeah, that'd be sick. I guess the final, well, you should probably give me 20 answers to this, but the final question I do ask people when it's become a tradition is if you could give three bits of advice to your 18-year-old, let's say, self, upon reflection, what would they be? They don't have to be long, but off the top of your head. Damn. If I was, how old? 18? Yeah. Don't go to uni. I wasted Agreed. three years. Um, leave the Northeast. Agreed. I should have come straight to London or San Francisco and um, don't freaking do B2B because that's not what I enjoy. I enjoy B2C. Yeah. I enjoy D2C. I enjoy e-commerce. I should have gone straight into that as well. Um, and just like, um, you know, just like take even more risks because it just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, you know. Especially when you're younger, like even if you've lost everything. I used to like wait, you know, it took me a while to realize you don't need permission to do anything, Yeah. you know, and I wish I'd figured that out at a much younger age. I want to follow up with my own cringy question that got cut last time. Because you've got one, I might as well have a trademark. <laughs> if you could meet I'm anybody in the world right now and you could ask them one question, so who would you meet, what would you ask them and why? Great question. <laughs> Surely Bernard. I was just about to say, it'd be yeah. Bernard Arno. And I would ask him, if he were in my shoes, what would he do over the next year to set the business up to create the vision that I want, yeah. which is effectively his business plonked so into mine. A different vertical and different industry. He yeah. flies under the radar. Yeah, You yeah, can't find much out about him. like last three weeks when he's been on the richest man in the world. That's literally yeah, yeah. I, I'd heard a bit about him, but only because yeah. I've, I've intentionally read about him. But yeah, really interesting guy. They're, did they buy APC? Someone bought APC, which is a big brand today, and they're in, in the room. It's rumoured that he might be... Probably. 
in the run-in to buy them as well. Yeah, interesting. One, anyway. like, final point on that, which I hadn't actually consciously thought about until the other day when someone was talking through it. The dif- difference between premium and luxury. LVMH is all about luxury. Premium is like, you know, you said that, basically reminds you of an iPhone or, or, or Apple. Like, yep. it's premium. It's got features that are better than everything else or, like, you know, a BMW X5 or something has mm. got better than a Corsa or something. But luxury, you're only buying it because you want to make a statement. It doesn't provide any more functional benefits, yeah. basically. Mm. And uh, all of LVMH's brands, they don't at all. You, you just want it to make a statement. You know, it doesn't provide anything more functional. And it's it's amazing. Cause it's a vanity they, purchase in a way, isn't it? Purely. Like, pure vanity know? purchase. Like perception of other people, of yourself. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's, it's like... It's pure emotion. And yeah. it's fascinating when you think about it like that. It is. That's a great point to end on, I think. Cameras are dead anyway. I just got the symbol. So on that bombshell. All right, all right team. Been a pleasure. As always, subscribe to the pod. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.